I started the boxing originally because I was getting bullied. I got bullied as a mm. child, but I've had to deal with bullies all my life. And the boxing gave me the, the strength and the courage to stand up to the bullies. And that's why I started boxing, really. My dad encouraged it. And when, when the bullies hit me as a child, when they'd finished beating on me, rather than them hit my brothers and sisters, I used to jump back in and say, don't hit them, continue to hit me. When you're walking to the ring, you're scared. You know, you get into the ring, you face your opponent, you touch gloves. You're scared. When the bell rings, the fear goes. But there's two spellings of the word fear. The coward spells it, forget everything and run. The fighter spells it, face everything and rise. You know, and I've been a fighter all my life. Maybe not a good fighter, but I've been a fighter. And for the ones that tried to bully me, I made life difficult for them. And for the ones that battered me in the boxing ring, I gave a good account of myself. I fought to the best mm. of my ability. I wasn't good enough maybe to beat them, but they knew that I tried my hardest. Mm. You know, and I've always been a fighter. I'm at the weigh-in, and I'm looking around the, the room. There's five or six big guys with tattoos and muscles, and I'm thinking to myself, I hope I'm not fighting him. Oh, I'm not fighting him. <laughs> 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 you know, they're impressive looking men. They yeah. think, oh, Jesus, like... Anyway, I've gone in to see the doctor. My heart was racing. I was so scared. This was just a weigh-in. And the doctor said to me, are you nervous, Joe? Stevie Wonder could see I was nervous. I was terrified. <laughs> I, went, I went, yeah, I'm nervous, doctor. He said, I've just examined your opponent, and he's twice as nervous. <laughs> I went on to win seven Irish titles, which was a major achievement. It was a big write-up in the boxing news. It said George Foreman made the comeback after 10 years. Big Joe Egan made the comeback after 12 years. <laughs> to get mentioned in the same paragraph as George yeah. Foreman was something else. One of the greatest heavyweight champions of all time. I shared the ring with lots of world champions and it was an honour to share the ring with them because I always maintained, if you're going to get battered, you might as well get battered by the best. I got battered by the best. I got battered by Steve Collins. I got battered by Mike Tyson. I got battered by Lennox Lewis. But they're great, great, great boxers. I turned into crime, I probably sold my soul, you know. Mm. When I was in prison, I won't name the chap's name, I met a man that had killed a man on the street. And it was in open prison at that stage. So uh, I introduced myself to him. So I said to him, I said, what are you in for? He said, I'm in for manslaughter. I said, oh, you killed a man? He said, yeah. He said, I'm not proud of it. He said, I was in the pub. He said, having a drink. He said, the row started in the pub. I defused the rail. He said, I didn't want to fight the guy. I was a professional boxer. He said, so I left the pub. He said, the guy followed me to my home. So he said, I walked out of my front door and he said, the guy swung at me and he said, I slipped it and I hit him and he fell and he hit his head and he died. I met another chap in there that had killed a man on the rugby pitch and he only got three and a half years. He stomped, what, scrum or something? He stomped on the guy's head on the rugby pitch. Oh. And in that particular incident at the pub, on the 19th of July, 1998, they put a demand in. Um, a gang that had been more or less running Birmingham for 15 years. Tugs and scum and... This particular gang had burnt down pubs in Birmingham. They'd, uh, they'd had a reputation. And they, they, they were a nasty, nasty gang. And uh, the guy that was fronting the gang, he, he'd come into the pub and he more or less told us what we had to do. Otherwise... This was going to happen. 
So uh, the following week, the 26th of July, the following Sunday, the Holy Communion on in my function room, this particular gang attacked my pub. 37 of them armed with a handgun. 37 of them? 37 of them, Sean, yeah. 37 of them armed with a handgun, a shotgun, hatchets and machetes. I was sitting in the ward in the hospital and two family members of the gang that had attacked me, they weren't in the attack, walked past me in the hospital ward and put their fingers to my forehead as if they were shooting me in the head. So I've stood up, I've knocked both oh, of them out, badly wounded. This is fact, I'm not making this up. Yeah. Right? I've knocked both of them up, I've picked up a stool, the assailant, the people, they're in that hospital ward. I didn't know who I was surrounded by because the people that had attacked me wore balaclavas and masks. And when we went into the hotel, Mike Tyson said, Joe, any more trouble at your pub and I'm landing. <laughs> <laughs> These people that worked me on the... Wow. Well, well, Mike knows about this. I said, yeah. of course he does. He's my boyhood friend. They said there's a young heavyweight in the Catskills called Mike Tyson looking for sparring partners. 17 years of age, same age. Actually, six months younger than me. Mm. I was so happy to hear this because I've been fighting men because I was big for my age. But I hadn't got that man strength. I was on the doors when I was 15. You know, I, I felt in my mind I was a big man. I was a mature man. I wasn't. I was still a teenage boy. But I was fighting men. But when I heard Mike Tyson was similar age to me, as it turned out, six months younger than me, I would never knew who Mike Tyson was. He was knocking out men left, right and centre. I didn't know this. So when I got to the Catskills, I met Cos, God rest him, and Marnie and Camille and Tom Patsy and Jay Bright and a few of the other people that were there. And then I met Mike. Mike was smaller than me, younger than me, and he spoke with a little bit of a lisp. So I thought, I'm going to batter you. (laughs) 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 Was I wrong? Big Joe Egan is here, finally. We have been trying to get Joe in for a couple of years now. Wildman was so looking forward to meeting him, but sadly, Wildman passed last year. R.I.P. Wildman. And uh, it's a hell of a story. He has recently been on the Michael Francis channel. Uh, we'll ask him about that in a second. But we're talking like um, gun battles, Mike Tyson's former sparring partner. Tyson said he was the toughest sparring partner he ever had. He's been shot multiple times. It's going to be action-packed, folks. We've also got Jen here today of Boomer and Jen Organic Cotton Clothing, and her links will be in the description, as will Joe's links will also be in the description if you want to support their work. So just to start out then, Joe, huge thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Sean, Jen, thank you for coming <sighs> to be on here. Thank you very much. Yeah, how was and it? God rest your friend. Yeah, he's over yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> how was it um, getting interviewed by Michael Francis? It was... What a it, gentleman, eh? Oh, what a lovely man. Yeah. I only watched him on Netflix uh, about three or four weeks before and I'd watched the big mafia programme and my sister's married to a, an ex-policeman in New York, a guy called Joe Marcatelli. He's of Italian descent. And I've met lots of Joe's family over the years that they've been together. You know, and some of Joe's family are, are heavily involved with the mafia. Some of his family are heavily involved with the police. But that's the way it is with the Italians in America, you know. And uh, I had a fascination with the mafia. When I lived in New York, I lived in a place called Bay Ridge in Brooklyn. And it was only 
20 minutes, 15 minutes from Bensonhurst where John Gotti had his stronghold. And I met a lot of guys in around Brooklyn that were connected. Very dignified, very civilised, you know. Obviously people that you wouldn't want to cross, <laughs> you know, but uh, they have their code of honour. And um, when when a friend of mine, Reese, gave me the opportunity to be interviewed by Michael Francis, I dived on the opportunity because I thought this is a, a great, 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 great guy. Because after watching him on Netflix, he had a fantastic, fascinating life and a fascinating story. So I was I was uh, chuffed to bits to be interviewed by him. When I spoke to the man, and a um, very dignified man, obviously a non Doesn't swear or anything, does no. he? No. Yeah. You know, very dignified, very suave, very, um, it's very cool. And looks young for his... 70 years of age. I can't believe he said he was in his 70s. 70 years of age. Oh, so high 50s, 60s. 70 years of age, you know, and uh, I'd say he's had a stressful life, you know, so obviously as an age from stress, you know, mm. he's, uh, he's aging very, very well. He looks really well. Mm. But I suppose in the line of work that he's been in, he's probably happy to be aging. Some of them don't get to age. They get took out very young. But... Um, yeah, he was a fascinating character. It was so lovely, so lovely. And then a few weeks after that, he interviewed Mike Tyson and Tom Patty, who we go back many, many years, Tom and Mike. You know, when I was in the Catskills with Mike, Tom was there, he was a great fighter. And um, they spoke about me. And Michael Francis was having a chat to Mike and uh, he said I had Joe on the show a few weeks ago. Mike got all excited. And it was lovely to see. <laughs> it was lovely to see. But he, he's... Um, He's a really lovely man, Michael Francis. You know, I kept in touch with him. Um, he sent me across his number. I've been texting a bit. And I have a pal of mine who uh, is talking about bringing him over to do some after-dinner speaking events. They, they, they'd spoken to each other last year before the COVID, the beginning of last year before the COVID. And um, it was, the wheels were in motion, but then the COVID came, mm-hmm. so then it stopped. So my pal contacted me. He said, Joe, I saw your interview. He said, I'm going to resurrect this uh, this uh, emailing again. And I said, well, I've got Michael Francis' personal number. I said, he gave me his personal number. I said, let me text him and see if I can give it to you. So I texted Michael and I said, my friend, who is an ex-boxing promoter, I said, I worked for him when he'd done shows in Ireland. I said, he's, he said, he's been emailing and looking to bring you over. He said, yeah, he says, Cass, that's the chap's name. And uh, he said, yeah, he said, please put him in touch again, Joe, he said. And... Uh, Let's make it happen. So it looks like it looks like maybe early next year he might be coming into the UK to do some after dinner speaking events, which will be great. Fantastic. You know, because yeah. I'll get onto the tour with them, and then uh, to meet the man in person. Like I said, I've only met him over over the over the internet, mm. doing the talks and been chatting over the phone. But if he gets onto some of the chat shows here, you know, the Jonathan Ross show or the the Graham Norton show, he will be such a guest, fantastic guest. And then the other Mafia go-to channel right now on YouTube is Sammy the Bull. Have you been watching any of his stuff? <laughs> he was interviewed by Michael Francis. Was Michael he? Francis, Valuetainment yeah. channel, Patrick. Yeah, they, they, yeah. they, they I haven't seen that. I've, yeah. I've read I've watched some like of the teasers for it. They're building yeah. it up. There's, I don't think that's the full thing going out yet. I'm not sure. I don't know. I've been watching the teasers, but yeah, and like Sammy's yelling at Michael. And Michael's <laughs> is up, he yelling yeah. for him? Sammy's like, Alder. Getting <laughs> all aggressive. Were they, were they arch enemies? Um... So it was the Gambino crime family, wasn't it? Versus, I think what's happened is, as these guys have got on YouTube, both have said different things about each other. Yes. And each other's friends. And some of that's caused dissension and beefs. 
It's, it's mostly internet beefs, I think. I don't think they were enemies back in the day. I'm not 100% sure. Because they were separate families and the families yes. get along through the council and all that stuff. But I think it's to do with what they've been saying online that's created these beefs. Not more podcast wars. Yeah, the ma- all, the mafia po- <laughs> all the US mafia podcasters right now have got their own podcast war going. Oh, wow. War of words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a better way to be than war of words. Rather than a war of bullets. Yeah. You, know, you, can, you can go back for the war of words and go and put you in the pillow. You know, but, so have you watched that, some of Sammy's stuff? He's a great storyteller. Do you know something? The lives they've lived. Yeah. The lives they've lived. If they're able... I notice there's, uh, they can't tell the full truths. Mm. They've, got to, they've got to sort of twist the stories because... Obviously, there's been fatalities in their lives, and they, 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 the families of some of the people that have died through the through the mm. through the through the uh, wars with the the different families, they have to still respect the families that are alive, mm. you know. So they can't sort of they've got to uh, they've got to tone it down a bit. Yeah, you know, definitely. And, um, but I bet it's interesting. Yeah, definitely. yeah. <laughs> I love the mafia films on television. What were your favourite movies? movies? Good, good films. Oh yeah. Any others? Yeah. Casino. Uh, oh, I love Casino as well. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know I love Joe Pesci? I think he's great. Yeah. He plays, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he yeah. is so versatile mm. as an actor. Mm. He can play a nasty piece of work mm. like in, 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 in Casino. And then when you watch him in My Cousin Vinny, he's so funny. Mm. He's so mm. versatile as an actor. You know, he's Definitely. brilliant. What about Harvey Keitel? Brilliant. Bad Lieutenant. Brilliant, brilliant yeah, actor. I, yeah. I got to, um, who did he was? What was the film? Did he do. Um, was a Pulp Fiction he done? Oh, I love Pulp Fiction. That's was my favourite. Harvey Keitel and Pulp Fiction. Mr. Wolf wasn't he? He came up and did the clean up. Yeah. Yeah. Does he do? What's the advert on television? It, the plumber. Is Harvey Keitel done the plumbing advert? Oh, I can't remember. I think it's Harvey Keitel because yeah. I've done the cast. I've done an audition yeah. for that advert. Did you? I got to the last two. Yeah. And my friend yeah. Adam Fogarty, he got the part. Yeah. Right. And they said um, Adam's playing the. Adam's a good actor. He's ex-boxer as well, ex-rugby star. And we sparred together in America with Mitch Green. Adam was over sparring in Gleason's as well. He's from Halifax. Fantastic. I played Gorgeous George in Snatch. He's done loads of films. But I lost out to him in the... um, in the Churchill ad. Mm. The Churchill ad? What, the nodding dog? Yeah, yeah. I didn't even get a look in. He got the part anyway. And, <laughs> but when we did the, I think it's direct line. Mm. The direct line, I think it's Harvey Keitel. But I got to the last two. So Adam beat me again, right? <laughs> so when I texted Adam, I said, Adam, it was great to see you, and I look forward to seeing you again soon, but not on an audition. You beat me twice. I don't want to see you again on an audition. We laughed about it, but he played, um, there's a big leak in the bathroom, and then I think it's Harvey Keitel. I'm, I'm 99.9% sure it's Harvey Keitel. And, um, Adam Fogarty walks in, with, with and the leak's going on, he says, hey, Joey here. Sort out the leak, sort of, you know. So it's, 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 it's but I'm sure it's, it's, I'm sure. Harvey Keitel, he was doing the direct line adverts, was he? I'm not sure because I don't watch much TV. Oh, I just remember him all the classic gangster God, movies. Yeah. Have you ever seen the Churchill ad? No, it's not as the British direct Bulldog. line. Oh, oh, the, I lost the Churchill ad, but I, I, I didn't even get a look in for that. Mm. I lost that, but Adam Fogarty got that. But the direct mm. line, I got to the last mm. two. And when, when, um, I, I, I done the, the casting. And then the casting agent called me back. They said, the director wants to see you. And it's an American director. So I've gone in and he, he looked at me. He said, Joe, do you get typecast? I said, how do you mean? 
He said, well, do you get to play the tough guy, the, the heavy and a lot of things? I said, I do. He said, well, we want somebody to look tough, but he said, we also want them with a bit of a soft demeanour. He said, you don't have that soft demeanour. <laughs> he said, you look too menacing, you know. Now, Adam's six foot five. He doesn't have a soft demeanour, but he played the part better than yeah, I would have because yeah. he's a better actor than me. Mm. But uh, it was still nice to get <laughs> second. Yeah, I got second. So I lost, and I lost to my pal, which wasn't too bad. Mm. But I do love the American gangster films. Yeah, yeah. classics. Oh, classics. Great. Even the old ones. Yeah. You know, the old James, Cag James Cagney Cagney. films. Yeah, all, yeah. You know, <laughs> I just think they're great. You know? So, Joe, for people who are not familiar with your story, then, how did this all begin? I mean, I've watched some of your interviews, so I'm, I'm, I'm quite aware, but for the viewers who are not familiar. Well, my background is boxing, and I started boxing. At a young age, at 10 years of age, had my first fight at 11. Was that in Ireland? Yeah, in Dublin, yeah. I Dublin. boxed Steve Collins. He went on to win two world titles. So Steve was 12 and a half when I boxed him. I was 11, he battered me. But that year and a half makes a difference when you're 11. Yeah. And I went home, I cried for weeks. But it either makes you or breaks you. I could have stopped, mm. but instead I got, I got determined and I thought, mm. I'm going to get better and I'll box him again. Years later, I boxed him again, but he beat me again. But he didn't beat me as bad as he beat me the first time. <laughs> you know, so I've learned, you know, and uh, he went on to win two world titles, the middleweight and the super middleweight champion of the world. So it was no disgrace losing mm. to the man. He's my friend. But uh, I started the boxing originally because I was getting bullied. I got bullied as a mm. child. My dad worked on the building sites in the UK and we came over to visit. I'm the eldest of seven. I've got four younger sisters and two younger brothers. So when I came to the UK to visit my dad, I got bullied because I had the Irish accent. So I picked up the English accent to try and mix in. And when I went home to Dublin, I got bullied in Dublin because I had the English accent. So I've experienced a lot of bullying in my life. Mm -hmm. But all my years boxing, I only ever had one tooth knocked out. I got two teeth knocked out in Manchester the day I made my Holy Communion. The bully boys tried to take my Holy Communion medal, held on to my medal, and they knocked out my two front teeth. One tooth only in boxing. So the boxing ring was probably quite safe for me, even though... <laughs> Even though you're in a fight, there's only one man you're against. If that man is Mike Tyson or Lennox Lewis, it's still only one man. Mm. When I got beaten by the bullies, I got beaten by gangs, and I got beaten with sticks and rocks and you name it. I got, I've been hit with a scaffolding poles. I've been oh, stabbed wow. a few times. I've been shot a few times. But I've had to deal with bullies all my life. And the boxing gave me the, the strength and the courage mm. to stand up to the bullies. And that's why I started boxing, really. My dad encouraged it and when when the bullies hit me as a child when they'd finished beating on me rather than them hit my brothers and sisters i used to jump back in and say don't hit them continue to hit me mm. you know and it got to the stage where i could absorb punishment like a sponge you know from the kickings and the beatings that i took so when i was in the boxing ring i could i could withstand a lot of punishment you know i have been battered i got i got battered in the boxing ring but i went in with the intentions just to learn how to fight and defend myself. I never thought I'd win an Irish title. I went on to win seven Irish titles, which was a major achievement. And I, I got to go to America. I boxed in America in Atlantic City when I was 17. And I boxed a big Marine sergeant. He was 28. He was a mature man. I'd left school when I was 14. I was on the doors of nightclubs at 15. And I was what was school like for you? It was hard because I'm not very academic, you know. Right. I, 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 I've got, um, I'm street smart, you know, because I've, 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 like, I've, I've grown up like looking after my brothers and sisters and ducking and diving. But as far as books and things and Pythagoras' theorems and stuff like that, <laughs> I was never, never good. But my sister, 
my middle sister, Maureen, she became a chartered accountant. So there is brains mm. in the family. Very proud of her, like, you know. But uh, me, I wasn't, I wasn't academic. And I really believed, even at 14, I thought, I'm going to make my fortune with boxing. I thought, I don't need to be academic, you know. I'll make my living, I'll make my fortune. I dreamed about becoming a champion of the world. I think every boxer that steps into the ring, male or female, dreams that dream. Only if certain few get to live the dream. I wasn't good enough to win a world title. Like I said, to win seven Irish titles, a major achievement for me. Mm. But I shared the ring with lots of world champions and it was an honour to share the ring with them because I always maintained, if you're going to get battered, you might as well get battered by the best. I got battered by the best. I got battered by Steve Collins. I got battered by Mike Tyson. I got battered by Lennox Lewis. But they're great, great, great boxers, you know, mm. and great guys into the bargain as well, you know. I'm proud to say they're my friends. And boxing, first and foremost, gives you self-respect and it gives you respect for your opponent. And that's such an important thing in life is to have self-respect and respect for others. And unfortunately, in this day and age, there's, there's, there's not enough respect out there. People, people are disrespecting people every day of the week, mm. every moment of every day. And it's sad, sad to see, very, very sad to see. But boxing, boxing, to me, is the greatest sport in the world. It doesn't. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't get enough recognition for what it does for young men and women. People say boxers come from the gutter. I don't like using that terminology. Boxers come from very, very humble beginnings. You know, boxing, basketball, and soccer—probably three of the sports where young men and women come from the street and they they get an opportunity to make a better life for themselves. And boxing has made such great lives for people that, in other ways, would have nothing. Yeah. You know, and I just love the sport. I love the sport. I love what it's done for men and women, given them the opportunities. Even at Tyson Fury now. Tyson Fury now is a young man that's a traveller that's probably had it hard through his life. And twice as hard because he suffers with mental health. Now he's the pinnacle, top of the tree of his sport, you know, and he's now helping so many people in the mental health. He hasn't forgot where he's come from. No. Amazing guy. You know, yeah, I love the man daily. Shout I love the man daily. I love that yeah, he was out with yeah. friends of mine today. His wife, Paris, has a new book out and he was doing a book signing today. And my friend, Paul Higgins, who I worked the doors with a lot of years ago, was the bodyguard there looking after mm. Tyson and his wife. You Does know. he need looking after? Do you know something? <laughs> years ago, it's funny you say that, Jen. I worked in Dublin Airport. I could never understand because I do security. I've worked security all my life, like I said, I was on the doors of nightclubs when I was 15. I've done static guard, store detective, bodyguard, doorman, air marshal with Delta Airlines. I was in the part-time army and on in the FCA and the military police. I've done every type of security work. And when I was younger, you look at some of these powerful men having bodyguards. You know, I watched Frank Bruno walking through Dublin Airport one day. I was working in Dublin Airport. And he walked through Dublin Airport. And he was... British heavyweight champion, a powerhouse of a man. And he had bodyguards with him. And I just think, why does a man like him? Even though I'm doing the security work, I still question, why does a man like him need bodyguards? But then you look at society and you think, society is full of sometimes idiots that want to play up to the cameras, play mm. up to these, these fighting men because they want to test themselves against these fighting men. So really the bodyguard mm. is protecting them idiots, not protecting Frank Bruno, but protecting 
the idiot because if Frank Bruno was to land a shot or a punch on one of the media's jaws, <laughs> you know, they wouldn't be counted one, two, three, they'd be counted Monday, Tuesday, <laughs> Wednesday, yeah. you know, so it's, it's protecting them. So that's what the bodyguard sometimes is doing, yeah. he's protecting Joe Public from the mm. man or the woman, because some of these women fighters, Katie Taylor, Leila Ali, to name just two, mm. Jane Couch, oh my God, you know, these are fighting women. These could take out men with a punch. Yeah. You know, so the bodyguards are protecting them idiots from these yeah. fighters. So growing up in the 60s and 70s then, what struggles did you and your family, I know you've got a lot of siblings, go through? Now, we had some hard times. You know, when you've got... My dad's a working man. I was born in 1965. And it was, it was hard for my mum. You know, my dad was away working in the UK. She came to visit him in the UK... She went to visit him in America when he worked in America. But Ireland's greatest export has always been its people. You know, we've gone all over the world to work. We've never gone to invade. We've never attacked other countries. You know, we've gone to work. And people are happy to see the Irish, you know, because we bring, we bring the humour, we bring the fun. A lot of the Irish drink. I, I'm an Irish man that doesn't drink alcohol. People <laughs> say, what sort of an Irish man are you that you don't drink? <laughs> My dad says I'm a failure as an Irish man. It's oh, expected no. <laughs> the paddies to drink. But when we were kids growing up, we had hard times, you know. But hard times make you appreciate good times. You know, I'm in a great place in my life now. And I've had some great times over the years. And I think experiencing them hard times really did make me appreciate some of the wonderful things that have happened in my life. But um, What jobs did your parents do back then? My dad's a concrete worker. He's, he's, he's um, a construction man. You know, he's worked all types of construction, but he's a, he's a concrete worker, you know, building the concrete columns and stuff. He's worked on skyscrapers in America. He's worked on... Bridges and dams, and uh, that was his that was his uh, expertise in the concrete business. He's still alive now, eighty four. Okay. Still a fit, powerful man. The dementia's hitting him a bit mm. now. Like you know, he's he struggles to, to. Sometimes he doesn't know who I am, you know, and that's that's quite heartbreaking. Some days we have him, some days we don't, you know. But the fact is that he's still alive. He still looks good, you know. His brain isn't all there, but. Um, He's still here with us, you know, and God rest the people that have, that have passed through COVID. Like there's been a lot of people died through this last 18 months mm. and God rest them. I'm, I'm happy to have still got my mum and dad, you know, yeah, one's definitely. 81, one's 84. But uh, he was a physical man when we were growing up. We didn't have a lot of time with him, Jen and Sean. We had um, years where we might only see him for two months of the year. But for them two months of the year, he'd spoil us, mm. you know. But he always sent the money home. Like I said, Ireland's greatest export's always been its people. The dads would go away to work. They'd send the money home for the mums to look after the kids. And I had to become the man of the house when, 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 when I was sort of old enough and, you know, make sure my brothers and sisters were okay because my dad was away working. But uh, we never went hungry. We never had a lot. You know, I would talk about it to people today. A chocolate biscuit in our house when I was a kid was a rare luxury, you know. Mm. And I see chocolate biscuits now on tables all the time at people's houses. It's not mm. a luxury anymore. No. You know, and even even in hard times, you can buy a packet of chocolate biscuits now, 25, 30 pence. That was a luxury in our home when we were growing up, a chocolate biscuit. And um, bread and potatoes, my mum could do, oh my God, beans. 
She could do amazing things. She was doing curry beans long before Heinz was doing curry beans. Wow. You know, my mom could do a treat with beans. We got beans on toast, beans beside toast, beans without <laughs> toast. You, know? <laughs> you would run a fart in our house. You <laughs> little, little match in our house. <laughs> <laughs> you little match in our house with the fat with the beans. Oh, oh my god! Yeah, yeah, we we had we had, uh, we had, uh, we had. Did you have a bit of cheese on the beans at least? Oh, she done that as well. Yeah, she done oh, the, she done the cheese. You know, we had I cheese. Like we had. Uh, <laughs> she done loads of things. You know, sometimes if if there was a few pop there, if there was money there. She did a bit of Worcester sauce. Oh, that's the truth. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Worcester like sauce. We had HP sauce. She would do loads of different... <laughs> Daddy sauce. And... Yeah. She done loads <laughs> of different ways with the beans. Like It was like an adventure. Check <laughs> out Joe's bean yeah, recipes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had beans, beans on toast one morning and then egg on toast the next morning, like soldiers. Oh, we had that. Yeah. We had that. Yeah. We had that. But there was always bread. There was always yeah. bread. Sometimes there might not be butter, you know, but mm. there'd be always bread. And... Um, I have a good friend of mine in Ireland. Uh, he went out to win a world title, a fighter called Jim Rock. And he's one of 13 children. And for years, he had no butter on his bread because they couldn't afford the butter on, his, on the bread with 13 kids. We were bad enough with seven. He had 13, so he had harder times than us. It was a lot worse off than us and probably worse off than the rocks. But still to this day, he doesn't take butter on his bread because he grew up with no butter on his bread. <laughs> it's amazing butter on bread. Mm-hmm. You know? I can't live without it on my toast. But sometimes we didn't have it, like you know, yeah. you know, every every now and again, you'd have a bad patch, you know, yeah. and you wouldn't have you wouldn't have the luxuries. And butter was a, a when I was a little boy, butter was a luxury, you know, and chocolate biscuits, chocolate biscuits was a luxury. Different things. Do you like chocolate biscuits? Now? Oh yeah. <laughs> looking at the size of me, <laughs> I like chocolate. What, what's your favourite chocolate biscuit? <laughs> Do you know something? Oh, I like I like them all. I like, I like them all. I've no favourite. I remember penguin biscuits. Oh, lovely. They they were, oh, I hated them. Did you? Yeah, I, honestly, three of us, we all used to, mum used to do the food shop once a month, right? Yeah. So by the end of the month, it was only those, those penguins yeah, left. Yeah, pick up a penguin. No, because we hated them, all three oh. of us. And we'd be like, oh, no. Me and my sister love penguins. Oh, that's disgusting. Disgusting. lovely now today. Yeah. Yeah. Disgusting. Disgusting. <laughs> today. I like No, I, I like, like wagon wheels. They've gone small. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> When I was a kid, when I was a kid, the wagon was the size of my head. <laughs> they could nearly hold the wagon. Now you buy a wagon wheel. Maybe it's because I'm big. Maybe it's because I'm big. But no, but they, I, they have got a bit smaller. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's cheating. Heartbreaking. <laughs> no, but, uh, no, I, still, I still like my chocolate biscuits. Definitely. I love my food. Yeah. I joke with people. People ask me all the time, what's my favourite meal? I say seconds. <laughs> we're going for a meal after a hair. Oh, yeah. I love my food but when we were kids growing up we had hard times but we had great times we'd make our own fun you know we used to have what a, sort of games did you used to play yeah we had the go-karts we used to make the go-karts and we used to do book and skate we used to we used to used to get a book and put it across a roller skate bit of string and sit on the roller skate <laughs> and go down the hill and you'd go to the side like this you'd go to, the side <laughs> to control the roller skate yeah. wow you know, and then skateboards came out we never had the money for skateboards and um just make our own fun make trolleys we used to have uh the the, the wheels off old shopping trolleys and put them on the bits of wood and make this the, the, the great times but hard times you know we used to climb the trees and Things, I things. think that's some of the best times because growing yeah. up, I, I spent a lot of time sort of tire swings, oh, yeah. uh, building dens. Yeah. And our kids today, they obviously, yeah, exactly. And kids today are just inside playing their computer games. They're not out mm. and about in the fresh air. They're not so, as tough now as what they used to be. 
children mm. now, I'm not being disrespectful to them, but they're mollycoddled, mm. right? They're mollycoddled now, you know, these, these PlayStation games and Nintendo mm. games and things like that, you know, the, the children are put into the, 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 the room, they've got the Xboxes and then they've got their um, YouTube and, and Atari <laughs> and things like that, you know. I, I think a child should be out braving the elements, mm. climbing trees, rolling around, wrestling with your friends mm. in the grass and, you know, physical. Because, see, with, with, with being physical and braving the elements, it makes you a little bit tougher. Mm. So when a cold or a flu or something comes along, you're a bit tougher. I'm not saying that the kids today are fragile, but they're a lot softer than when I was a kid. Definitely. You know, I see yeah. my nephews and nieces like they, they, they. Not as robust. No way. You, no one. You throw your baby. Throw your baby in the mud. <laughs> oh, <goodness. laughs> That's a saying, isn't it? Is it? Get their immune systems boosted. Ex- them expose them the to mud. things. You look at some of the yeah, things yeah. that we would have eaten and drank. You know, when we were kids. Mm. Oh, I would eat mud. Yeah, I used I'd to eat, eat bugs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even right, tap water. Turkey pigs. Even tap water. Yeah. Even mm. tap water when mm. we were kids. And the 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 way of, of, of cleaning the water 50 years ago, I'm 55 now, so 50 years ago wouldn't have been as advanced as what it is today. Mm. So there would have been bacteria even in the tap water mm-hmm. that I was drinking as a kid. Mm. It didn't do me any harm, really. It strengthens your immune system. It does, yeah. yeah. You know, now they've got so many... Um, what do they call them, systems that they put the water through, mm-hmm. filter systems, Filters, right? Yeah. So by the time the tap water gets to you, it's very, very clean compared to what I would have been drinking mm. at my age when I was a, when I was five and six. I used to drink stream water. Mm. You know, we used to go camping and we'd, we'd fill up a bottle of stream water, we'd drink the stream <laughs> yeah. water, go yeah. over the rocks and things. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and now it'd be frowned upon. Mm-hmm. I don't drink the tap water, you've got to drink bottled water. Mm. You know, we wouldn't have had the money to buy bottled water. <laughs> so, no. No. What, what year did you move to England then? You said you came to England and went back. Oh, we came over to forth. England loads of times when we were kids. You know, my dad So kids just came temporarily, was it, then back and forth? Oh, we'd forth. come for a few months at a time yeah. during the summer holidays. Yeah. And then we'd spend a bit of time. Not every year. Mm. We couldn't do it every year. Where did you yeah. land at, Liverpool? No, we went to Liverpool, we went yeah. to Manchester, we went to London, mm. um, was in Birmingham. Um, different parts of the UK that my dad was working at the time. Mm. You know, if he, was, if he was working in London, we'd land in London, Tooting, Wandsworth, um, Putney, Wimbledon. Did you like the ferry? I did, yeah, when we were kids, it was an adventure. I remember being on it, it going, was an adventure going the other way. As a kid, yeah. yeah we used to get the Holyhead Ferry, we used to get the Liverpool yeah. Ferry, across the Dublin, Dunleary. You know, and it was an adventure. Mm. You know, I've done it now as an adult. It's like a floating hotel now. <laughs> you know, they've got so many luxuries on the ferry now. But when we were yeah. a kid, was it, it was just like, a car? Like you had to sit in your car? No, no, you could go up on the decks and stuff. But it was. Um, it was a coffee it wasn't, shop. It wasn't like it is now. No, there'd be there'd be a sweet shop or a, or, a, or a coffee shop. But now they've got McDonald's. They've got oh, you want to see what they have got on the ferries now? Oh, are oh, they? Yeah, yeah cinemas. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah. oh, this is on the Irish ferry. This is on the Irish Irish ferries across from Dunleary to They've got cinema rooms, um, games rooms for the kids, play play rooms and machines and mm. um, bars and restaurants. But on the Isle of Man ferry, when it hits some waves, that goes up and down, that one. It's all chained down. It's chained down, yeah, yeah. I've never been to the Isle of Man. Oh, you've never been? Never been to the Isle of Man. I've been okay. to the Isle of Wight. I've been to Guernsey. been to Jersey. Yeah. been to... Um, Jersey, Guernsey, 
Isle of Wight. Didn't ask you the other day. That's mm. the three. That's the three I've been to. But I've never done the Isle of Man. So your family was always based in Ireland then? In Ireland, yeah. You came to visit England. Yeah. Did you move permanently to England at some point? Yeah, when my boxing finished, Sean, I um, had a bad car accident. I went professional with my boxing. Um, and I had four professional fights with Mr. Eastwood, who was Barry McGuigan's and Dave Boy McCauley's manager, mm. two Irish world champions. And I signed professional with him, was chuffed to bits because he was the... Mm. The big man and uh, lovely man as well, Mr. Eastwood. He's died recently as well, God rest him. But uh, he managed me. But then I was involved in a, in a bad car crash and my boxing was finished. Oh, so after wow. my third, after my third professional fight, oh dear, and my boxing was finished, and I yeah. went into a bit of a, I went into a bit of a bad depression. Mm. And people used to say to me about depressions, you know, they were in an elderly depression. And I used to, I used to joke with people, behave yourself, mm. until it hits you. And it's like the sucker punch from hell when it hits you. Because mm. I never believed that I was all full of the joys of life. Even with the, the hard times that I've had, I still used to smile and laugh and have to crack with people and joke and just have fun. Mm. Because we're not here for a long time. We're here for a good time. And good time for a long time. The, yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah, and people ask me for my autograph, Jen, and I'm very humbled. And I always sign happiness, Joe Egan. <laughs> I wish people happiness because it's you can have all the money in the world and all the respect in the world, but if you're not happy, what good is it? And even mm. when, when I've had very little, I'm not saying I've got a lot now, but even when I had very little, I was still happy. I was happy with my lot, you know, and that's what you've got to be. You've got to try and smile and soldier on and, and enjoy life because today is a gift from God. Tomorrow's not promised to anybody. That's why today is called the present. Mm. It's a gift from God. And I'm not trying to throw my beliefs. I pray every day. I believe in the power mm. of prayer. I believe in God. Call him Allah, call him Buddha, call him God. As long as you respect him in the right way, like I said earlier on, respect is such an important thing. Respect your vows, respect your God, and respect other people and carry yourself well. And for people that don't believe, I don't try and force my beliefs on them. But what I say to them is, think about it. I say, see when the shit hits the fan. And the shit hits the fan for a lot of us. What's the first thing you say? God help me. Yeah. That's the first thing you say. And the second thing you say is, and I, I believe that they've got to be there, mm. the police. They have to be there. If they weren't there, we'd have anarchy. Mm. Now I've had my run-ins with them. I've had a lot of run-ins with them over the years. I'm glad that they're there. I don't like seeing them in my rear view mirror. No. I'm, glad that, I'm glad that they're there. Yeah. But the first thing we say is, God help me. And the second thing we say is, phone the police. Yeah. You know, so both things that we, we slate, that we criticise, that we, 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 we sort of condemn in a way. We condemn the police, we condemn God. But both times when the shit hits the fan, they're the two things that you, you call on and you rely on. Well, I was facing 200 years, I was praying a lot. Right. And um, we do interview a lot of ex-cops on the channel and they're campaigning for, with us, to end the war on drugs and for the government... We want the government to prioritise crimes against women and kids. Because mm -hmm. it just seems like they're at the bottom of the scale and they should be at the top. It's all upside down. The thing is, we've all got mothers. Mm. That's one thing that we can, we're here because of mothers. Mm. Fathers make a contribution, but it's the mother that carries us for nine months. The mother that has the hard job, I believe. And I'm not saying it because you're a lady there, Jen. I believe that the woman has the hard job. Right? The Thank man's you. job. Yeah. The man's <laughs> job is, is a fun part of bringing a child into the world. It's the woman that has to carry that child for nine months, then deliver that child, nurture that child, you know. And I, I, I don't like to see violence against women. I hate it as a matter of fact. I don't, not that I don't, I actually hate it with a passion because 
I don't think a woman should be hit. I think women deserve the respect and the care and the consideration as we should all respect each other, you know, and, and care for each other. But women, I'm not saying that they're fragile. I'm not saying that they're soft. You look at some of these women that are boxing, like I said earlier on, Neil Ali, mm. Katie Taylor, Jane Couch, tough, 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 tough women. And a woman, a woman is tough. To carry a child, to deliver a child, to go through what they go through, raising a child, it's hard. You know, I've got no children and I admire people. I've got brothers and sisters that have had children. I've got all my brothers and sisters that have children and I admire the job that a woman does. I respect the job that a woman does. But women shouldn't be getting hit. No. My mum, we spoke about her earlier on, my mum said, even in all my dad's drunken rages, he never raised his hand to her. And I would hate to hear that he did because I worship the ground he stands on, you know, and I would hate to hear that he hit my mum, you know, and I'm I'm, I'm so glad to hear of my mum that he never raised his hand to her. And the battle against drugs, drugs is all around us. And I worked the doors. I saw, I saw what drugs can do to people. You know, I saw the lives ruined, the lives being taken by drugs, the sadness that drugs brings in. People say, oh, drugs bring euphoria, euphoria and great highs and great fun. It brings in more sadness than it brings in highs. It brings in so many lows. More lows than it does highs, and I've always found that in the past with drugs, it's the high may be good, but the down is a real down. Yeah, but the high might bring that one person high, mm. but so many people it's bringing a low to, you know. And I, I just think this battle against drugs, it's got to, it's it's got to, it's got to continue. They've got to win because drugs is the cause of so many problems in the world that we're living in, you know. They, 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 they blame so many different things, but I believe drugs is the main root of the cause of a lot of household problems, rage, um, people, people doing despicable things to people. Everything from life, crime in London to hundreds of thousands dead in Mexico. But would you drugs, not put that more drugs, down to drugs. addictions anyway? Because you've got gambling, alcohol. So obviously, alcohol is classed as a drug, not just. I've, I've 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 met a lot of gamblers over the years. I've met mm. I've met I've met a lot of, a lot of drug abusers over the years. I'd rather be in the company of a gambler than, than a, a drug, drug abuser. Agreed. Right, because at least you know where you stand with a gambler. It's hard to know where you stand with a drug user because they're unpredictable. And to me, I don't want to be in the company of somebody that that could just turn on you as quick as a blink mm. because of drugs, you know. Yeah. And I'm not saying I'm any capable man. I'm well able to look after myself. But you give your back to the wrong person and a person that's that's high on drugs, that's um, volatile because of drugs, you don't know what the outcome's going to be. No. I've given my back to many gamblers. I've walked, <laughs> I've walked, yeah. I've walked in the book. I've walked in the bookies. Oh. I've gone down to the bookie yeah. shop for my granddad. I've stood only the other day I was with my boss, John O'Connor, we're in the bookie shop and I'm trying to pick a couple of greyhounds. <laughs> and the bookie's full of men and women behind me. No problem whatsoever. Yeah. I was writing my bet sale, having a look at the greyhound racing. <laughs> Hopefully he's trying to pick a winner. I couldn't do that with a room full of druggies. Mm. No. You know, no. and I'm not being disrespectful to them, but it's a sad life that they lead. It's a sad, li- a sad life that they exist. They don't live a life, mm. they exist a life. And it's tragic to see. 
you know, and I, I believe that we shouldn't make your fortune out of somebody else's misfortune. Mm. It's tragic, really, the world Definitely. we live in with the drugs. You know, gambling has been around since day one. Mm. Alcohol has been around more or less since day one as well. You know, Jesus shared wine, you know. So yeah. it's, it's, you know, but drugs hasn't been around since day one. Drugs has come along through life. Mm. And I don't think it's brought happiness to people. I think it's brought so Temporary. much sadness. Do you yeah. not do you not drink because you had a problem with alcohol at some no, point? No, I don't no. drink. I just no interest in the alcohol. I had a Guinness with my dad yeah. when I was 16 and a cider with my friends when I was 14. Mm. I've never took drugs. I was on a film set once. Strong-minded. No, I enjoy life. I don't mm. need drugs or alcohol. High on life. Enjoy. Yeah, I am yeah. high on life. Yeah, yeah, I am really high on life. Yeah. You know, I've got some great friends. I've got great mm. family around me and... I'm very fortunate, you know. I'm mm. very blessed, really. Because, Sean, you don't drink either. So. No, because yeah. I had addiction issues. Did you? So if I drink, then the, 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 the guard is down and I'm likely to do oh. silly stuff, get into, you know, back into drugs or something. So I just stay away from all of it now, yeah. Abstain altogether? Altogether, yeah. Well, you're yeah. good. You're good yeah. being able to do yeah. that. Yeah. You know, fair play to you. Yeah. But I, I've I've no interest. No, no, mm. not, not for health reasons or for anything else. I just don't... I just don't like them, mm. you know. I don't like to drink and uh, the drugs, definitely not. I was on a film set. I was on a film set um, a number of years ago doing a trailer for a film and the film's called Dockyard and that, uh, the director told me what to do. He said, right, the drugs have been smuggled in in, in cans of uh, coffee. He said, take the knife, open the tin of coffee, put the knife in, take the knife out, put the, the contents of the, the tin, which would be the drugs, mm. onto the tip of the knife, then put it on your gums and give the reaction mm. as if you've got cocaine in your system. <laughs> and I said to the director, I've never took drugs. And the director looked at me, you've never took drugs? The assistant director went, you've never took drugs? The cast and the crew went, you've never, never took drugs? <laughs> the runner was going to get my coffee and sandwiches. He looked at me, you've never took drugs? I actually felt like an outcast. Yeah. I went, no, I've never took drugs. If you are enjoying this podcast, you will love Big Joe Egan's book. This podcast is just a couple of hours long. The book is hours and hours and hours of mind-blowing stories, way more details, going back to the stuff with Tyson, starting out in boxing, all the way through to the war at the pub, and all the dramatic stuff you've heard today, but in way more detail. I really enjoyed meeting Joe Egan. The book has nearly five stars on Amazon, and the link is in the description box below this video. Yeah, it's got 40-something reviews. It is riding high right now. If you want to check it out, it's available as an ebook, paperback, and audio. Enjoy the podcast. I said, I've never took cocaine. I said, I wouldn't even know what the reaction is, mm. other than glazed eyes, <laughs> you know, but... Uh, <laughs> Did they have to teach you what the reaction was going to be? The director (laughs) told me what way to react, yeah. He said, told me what way to react. He said, said, sort of, you know, give a little bit of... Mm. (laughs) (laughs) As if you've got, you know, the Novocaine that hits you when your dentist does your uh, teeth. He said, that numbness, you know. He told me what uh, what way to do it and... uh, do you the think film you nailed it. <laughs> I don't know to tell you the truth. The film's never been made. It was still an investment trailer. Mm. But I've done um three investment trailers. I've just done one there recently for the for the uh, boxing, the kickboxing film. Um a friend of mine, Ken, he's having a, a film made about his life. He's an ex British kickboxing champion and Michael Elkin, who directed the last film of Rutger Hauer called Break, he's he's doing the trailer, the investment trailer. And uh, well, I've done that investment trailer. 
and then I did an investment trailer for that uh, dockyard and then I did an investment trailer for a movie called Price Fighter. And they're actually making Price Fighter at the moment, Russell Crowe and Ray Winston. I hope to be filming with them next week. Um, so three that I've done, one's come to fruition. One has is, is just been done, so hopefully that will come to fruition. And the dockyard was done a few years ago. COVID has affected a lot of things. I can imagine. You know, but uh, the three that I've done, and uh, fingers crossed, all three get made. Mm. Yeah, but definitely. It's, it's good fun doing the acting, you know. It's a whole new chapter to my life. How long have you been doing it for? Ten years now. Oh, wow. Oh. Well, do you know something? People joke about the boxing. The boxing is the entertainment industry. And even though it's it's a contact sport, it's still mm. fun. And it's still the entertainment industry. So I do joke with people. When I was boxing, I did two adverts for Irish television for uh, a Lions teabag ad and a Murphy Stout ad. <laughs> so yeah, that was fun. A stout ad. Murphy Stout. Don't drink alcohol. I oh yeah, that was gonna say. Murphy Stout and Lions tea. Yeah. I, I don't drink tea and I don't drink beer. Yeah. But uh, I do joke with people. I acted my way through a boxing career. I, I you know, I used to do the alley shuffle and mm. just have fun and <laughs> have to have uh, and enjoy the boxing. You know, even in fights that I was getting battered in, I still mm. enjoyed them. You know, so to break into the acting now, ten years ago, Cas Pennant published a book about my life. Mike Tyson launched the book in Canary Wharf. Tom Patty and Mike did the forward for the book. The book was a bestseller. It brought Canary Wharf to a standstill. Thousands and thousands of people came to Canary Wharf to buy the book and to see Mike Tyson. I know everybody was there for Mike Tyson, but Mike Tyson was there for me. Yeah. It was one of the proudest <laughs> days of my life. There were several world champions in attendance. Barry McGuigan, Paul Silky Jones, Alan Minter, God rest him. Was Steve Collins? There was there was there was an amazing amazing day, and then Cass, who had a movie made about his life, called Cass. He gave me a, a part in his film. I played the landlord of the Britannia pub. So when I was on the film set, Tama Hassan, the actor, he said to me, "Joe, you've got an amazing presence on screen. Would you fancy an acting career?" And I said to, to Tama, "I've been acting all my life. I said through the boxing, standing yeah. on the doors, having fun, you know." So I said, yeah, I'll give it a go. So he introduced me to his agent, and uh, she said to me, they're auditioning for a part in the Sherlock Holmes film to play a character called McMurdo to fight Robert Downey Jr. So I go down and do the casting. So I went down, met the casting agents. They said, look into the casting lens, give an intimidating stare, <laughs> say this line. So I did that. Can line. you demonstrate wow. that? I said, wow, you've got an amazing intimidating stare. <laughs> they said... Um, I've had to look into the eyes of Mike Tyson and Lennox Lewis to try and intimidate them. So intimidate, to intimidate a couple of casting agents is no problem. <laughs> anyway, I got the part. I went down to carriages to do the read-through. My name played Joe Egan, opposite Joe, Joe Silver, the CEO of Warner Brothers, Guy Ritchie. All around the table, the hierarchy of Warner Brothers. I'm sitting next to Jude Law, Robert Downey Jr., Ray Chumash Adams, who got the, the Academy Award for Southpaw, Eddie Marson, all these stars. And... I was so honoured to be there. And then Guy Ritchie said, Joe, I've been trying to get you in one of my movies for a long time. I, I couldn't believe it. I said, yeah, you're winding me up. Were you starstruck? I was, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, was, yeah. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. leaned in. This is Iron Man. Yeah. And he said, Joe, you come with a fearsome reputation. I couldn't believe that these people even knew me. But they knew me through sparring with Mike Tyson. Robert Downey Jr. is good friends with Tom Patty. They're in a car, car club in, in Los Angeles and they're friends. So he knew of me. Anyway, got on great with him. Travelled down in the minibus to do the practice fight. A guy said, how are things? I said, things are okay. Guy, I'm making ends meet. He said, has your agent told you what you get for the fight scene? I said, Guy, I never even asked. I'm just honoured to be in your field. When he told me, it was more than I got any of my pro fights. 
I was deadly serious. I said, Guy, for that money, Robert Downey Jr. can really hit me. You can kick me as well if you want to. And he took me for the laugh and he said, Joe, I don't want you to be beaten up. I said, Guy, I've been beaten up for a lot less. I do a few weeks in hospital for that money. And I didn't have to get beat up. I get into a prison scene that wasn't in the script. He put it into the script for me. And I get called Big Joe. I get called my own name by an Academy Award winning actor in a wow. Warner Brothers movie directed by Guy Ritchie. And it's made all the beatings that I've took in my life worthwhile. And I've took some savage beatings mm -hmm. in my life inside the boxing ring and outside the boxing ring. It's made them all worthwhile mm -hmm. because my mum is so proud. You know, my mum never wanted me to box. No mother wants to see her son being beaten no. up. But she sees me killed in the films all the time. She's been beaten up. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't care. She knows it's not real. Mm -hmm. You know? Two oh, films no. I get killed twice in. Wow. People say, how can you get killed twice? I get killed as a human being, turned into a werewolf, and killed as a werewolf. <laughs> I get killed as a human being, turned into a vampire, and killed as a vampire. I get killed twice in two films. <laughs> I don't mind. It's it's only in the films. You know, I've had a few run-ins with the Grim Reaper in real life. Mm. You know, he's come for me a couple of times, but I've been able to fight him off so far. Yeah. You know, so. What was your closest shave? Um, I had a blood clot in the back of my knee. And I was in America and I'd been on a 14 hour flight into North Carolina. And the blood clot went from the back of my knee into my lung. And I was five days in intensive care, three days in a, in a coma. So that nearly took me. Uh, I've been stabbed a few times. How many times? Four. Oh, four, four different occasions. Four different occasions, yeah. yeah. Oh my. Yeah, not nice. Jen's not heard the story of the. Um the running battle and the gun. Oh, my oh, God. Could, could you run that one down for, for Jen? Do you know something? That was probably... People say to me about being scared. I say, yeah, I'm only human. I'm not a machine. It's a human feeling to be scared. But there's two spellings of the word fear. The coward spells it, forget everything and run. The fighter spells it, face everything and rise. You know, and I've been a fighter all my life. Maybe not a good fighter, but I've been a fighter. And for the ones that tried to bully me, I made life difficult for them. Mm. And for the ones that battered me in the boxing ring... I gave a good account of myself. I fought to the best mm -hmm. of my ability. I wasn't good enough maybe to beat them, but they knew that I tried my hardest. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've always been a fighter and I've always had an abundance of courage. I've always been very brave. And that particular incident at the pub on the 19th of July, 1998. How old were you at that point? Oh my God, Sean. 60 something you said, and you were born. I was 60. born in 65, so 69. this was 26 of July, 1998. My match is rubbish. <laughs> So 1998 in Borneo. I'll probably turn... 33. 33. I don't That's know. my age. Well, you 55 now. So I'm 56 in November. Congrats. So um, I don't know how old I was. But <laughs> 30, 33. 33. Do you know something? On the 19th of July 1998, they put a demand in. Um, a gang that had been more or less running Birmingham for 15 years. Tugs and scum. And um, I thought this... Even though I'd done the security all my working life when it happens to you like that you think this is something you just see in a movie mm. you know these protection racketeers but when it's happening to you it's sort of very surreal anyway my business partner at the time um, I called Thomas McGill um, he's ex-French Foreign Legion he wanted to take it to them he said let's bring it to them let's not wait for them to come to us let's bring it to them and the naivety in me not being a coward I'm no coward the naivety in me, I said, no, no, I've got a second bite at the apple. My boxing mm. career is finished. I'm running a business now, a pub, and I'm making a good living. I've got a nice life. I live upstairs in the pub. I'm a pillar of the community, a licensee for a pub. Never in trouble in my life at the time, Sean. Well, Jen, I was never in trouble, you know. <laughs> Honourable discharge from the, the, the uh, part-time army in Ireland, the FCA. 
Del Deadlines, FAA registered licensee for a pub, you know. So I've always been a, a good person. And I said, let the police handle this, Tommy. I said, let the police handle it. So what had gone on prior? They demanded £500 a week from my business. They said, otherwise your pub's going to get burnt down. Right. You know, and um, these, this particular gang, I won't mention their names, I'm not going to glorify them. This particular gang had burnt down pubs in Birmingham. They'd, uh, they'd had a reputation. And they, they, they were a nasty, nasty gang. And uh, the guy that was fronting the gang, he, he'd come into the pub and he more or less told us what we had to do. Otherwise, this was going to happen. So uh, the following week, the 26th of July, the following Sunday, at a Holy Communion on in my function room, this particular gang attacked my pub. 37 of them, armed with a handgun. 37 of 37 them? 37 of them, yeah. 37 of them, armed with a handgun, a shotgun, hatchets and machetes. I was very, very fortunate that I had friends of mine that used to frequent the pub. Mm. Xboxes, doormen, tough guys that frequented the pub and would have been in there for no other reason than they enjoyed the atmosphere in my pub. And I was very blessed, and I mean I was very blessed, on that day that them men and women were there because there was women fought alongside me as well. Wow. Fighting for their lives, yeah. you know, because these people came to kill and maim. And uh, it was a, a pitch battle. It was half an hour before I'd got the warning that they were coming. And then there's a 25-minute pitch battle. And uh, I took a couple of gunshot wounds. There was a, a very personal friend of mine, Steve Dalton. He took two bullet wounds. How did um, you know they were coming? We got a phone call. We got a phone call. I can't say who phoned me. I, I, I had a friend of mine phone me to say that these gangs were gathering in these particular pubs and they were on their way to attack you on a Sunday afternoon, broad daylight. Sunday afternoon, people were enjoying the Sunday. Oh, Holy yeah. Communion in my function. That's low, isn't it? It was a horrible, horrible, horrible day. That headlines in the newspapers, it made Braveheart look like a Walt Disney film. There was. Um, Did you have to form a battle strategy once you no, had the heads up? No, it was, it was, it was, was it terrifying. It was terrifying. Um, when, they, when they got onto the car park of the pub, all balaclavaed up and masks on and... Uh, Wave. It was. It was. It was. It was a, it was a horrible. But what, must have been like a dozen cars at least, or something, was there? They'd walked. They'd walked down Sutton Road. They'd walked down Sutton Road, broad daylight. No. Well, this sounds like football hooligans, you know, on that film. Um, I won't even. I won't even. Foot soldier. Yeah, I think it was Foot Soldier, or something, one of those films, uh, Football uh, Factory. Was, I think it is where they were all walking down the yeah. road, just a big gang of them. That's what it was weapons like. Weapons and. That's what it was like. They yeah. walked down, and they walked down Sutton Road onto my car park, and. Um, it was it was a nasty nasty. Where thing. were you when you spotted them? I was in my pub. I was I was trying to get help from the police. I'm not ashamed no. to say it. I was phoned. I phoned four times during the attack, and I I actually begged for help because there was friends of mine wounded, badly wounded. I was badly wounded, you know. And, what were the police uh, telling you? Someone's on the way. I had, I had a friend of mine. He's a sergeant at the time, Andy Gilbert, and I phoned that man. And he knew what was going on. He was my local beach sergeant, an absolute gentleman. He's, he's, he's raised in rank now in the police and I hope he goes all the way to the top because he is a credit to the force. And he was on his way to me. He said, I'll radio the station. He said, I will get men to physically disperse these gangs. As he was on his way to me, he got sent to a Mickey Mouse alarm call. On the Bromford. Oh. Mickey Mouse alarm call. Did an arm response unit ready that day. They had an arm response unit ready from two o'clock that day. They knew there was men coming to my pub with guns. They had an informants, and it still took 
30, 30 minutes of phone calls and 25 minutes of a battle. 55 minutes before the first policeman arrived on my car park. Do you think they paid the, someone off? No, I don't think they paid anybody off. I just think that they're short-numbered. They're, 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 they're short of staff, right? Mm. They're closing down police stations, right? And I will not criticise the police. I will not state the police in any shape or form, Yeah. right? I just don't think there's enough police. Yeah. I mm. think the, even in the West Midlands now, there's only six or seven mm. fully maintained police stations. They're closing police stations. It's all getting privatised and everything. They're closing down yeah. police stations. And we're living in a horrible society. Mm. There should be police stations everywhere. There should mm. be policemen on every corner. Mm. You know, there should be patrolling policemen, driving policemen, cycling policemen, helicopters. Mm. We live in, 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 a, in a society at the moment that's riddled with guns, riddled mm. with knives, riddled with drugs, riddled with gang wars, mm. and yet they're depleting the numbers of police yeah. when they should be increasing the numbers of police. Mm. This was 1998 and they hadn't got enough police on that day for mm. me. You know, so you, one, one police station, yeah. one police station, Queen's Road Police Station, mm. I lived four, maybe 600 metres from Erdington Police Station. Yeah. The police station was six, 800 metres from the Lindhurst pub. Yeah. Closed on a Sunday yeah. in, a, in, a, in a community, Erdington, you know, in Birmingham, a busy community, yeah. and the police station closed. One police station covering that region. It's Have you seen them past couple of days? Queen's Road yes. Police Station. They've since closed yeah. Queen's Road Police Station. Mm. You know, now the only police station that's covering that area is Stetchford. Mm. You know, so you're covering a lot of mm. a lot of area. And then on a Sunday, you've only got a small workforce. Mm. You know? They haven't got the numbers to, to yeah. respond. Did your attackers know that? I, I, I think these people that attacked me have no they've had a, a hatred for me that they shouldn't have had. I'd done nothing on them for them to hate me. But they had a hatred of of anything that was decent. When you saw him coming up the street then, what was going through your mind? Fear. Mm. You know, fear. Not just for me because, like I said, I, I, I spelt it earlier on, face everything and rise. I rose that day. But mm. I rose that day because I had men and women fighting alongside me. And I was blessed that they were there. Because if they weren't there, I wouldn't be here today. So All the- right, I might have took a couple of the people that attacked me with me. You know, but I wouldn't be here today. I was blessed that there was men and women. And there was a man that was shot beside me, a man called Tim O'Regan. Tim O'Regan had survived World War Two. He'd fought in oh, World War Two. An Irish man that had fought for the British Army in World War Two. He stepped out. When the shotgun, when the handgun had been thrown on the floor, they'd fired three shots from the handgun. It was thrown on the floor. It jammed after three shots. It was a five-shot handgun. And it hit my pal. Dalton twice and he threw the handgun on the floor Tim O'Regan stepped out with his hands up he said I can stop this I can stop this as he stepped out with his hands up I stepped out to pull him back in behind the wall in the entrance to my pub he was shot the hip blown out of him and I hit the the shotgun pellets twice but this was this this shouldn't have happened Mm. you know this it should never have got that far you know, there was a, there was a, 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 like, like I said, it was, it was a bad, bad day. Yeah. And blessings of God, nobody died. Even on the side that attacked me, nobody died. You know, and I'm glad that nobody died, even from the side that had attacked me. I wouldn't want that blood on my hands if somebody had died that day. So a lot and of I'm so glad that nobody died. 
from the people that were in my pub. A lot of people got hospitalised. I was not hospitalised. I had to fight my way out of the hospital, Sean. You had to fight your way out of hospital? I got talked to the hospital with Tim O'Regan. I got brought to the hospital, badly wounded, Mm. in the hospital, sitting in the ward in the hospital, Mm. with the man that had been shot badly on my pub. Mm. As we got brought into the hospital... Hospital drivers were talking to each other. They said, we've got the two gangs from the Lindhurst in the hospital. I said, there's no two gangs at the Lindhurst. I said, there was one gang attacked the pub. And I said, me and friends of mine that were in the pub defended us. I said, is there a police presence in the hospital? Yeah, there's a police presence in the hospital. I was sitting in the ward in the hospital. And two family members of the gang that had attacked me, they weren't in the attack, walked past me in the hospital ward and put their fingers to my forehead as if they were shooting me in the head. So I've stood up, I've knocked both oh, of them out, shit. badly wounded. This is fact, I'm not making this up. Yeah. Right? I've knocked both of them up, I've picked up a stool to sail into people that are in that hospital ward. I didn't know who I was surrounded by because the people that had attacked me wore balaclavas and masks. Right? So I picked up a stool to sail into them. People screaming, no, not to do with us, not to do with us. Then the police came running in. And I've read a few screams and shouts at the police. I said, you've walked me into this, right? Which was bad, right? Eventually, I, I got out of the hospital and I went to another hospital the next day to get seen to. Wow. But that's not, the, that's not the best part of it, Sean. I got charged. I had to defend a charge against me. All I'd done was defend myself. That's right? bullshit, isn't it? Yeah. When I beat the charges, when I beat the charges, I got summoned to Queen's Road Police Station to collect my belongings. I went down to Queen's Road Police Station. I had, had a lot of um, stress and anxiety, you know, getting into trouble. Never been in trouble in my life, Sean, up until that moment in time. And um, when, 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 when I did get into trouble and after the battle and everything else, I had an abscess in my belt burst and the poison went through my system. Oh. And I was in, it, was, it, was, it, wasn't, it, was, it, was, it wasn't good times. It wasn't good times in my life. And... Um, we will talk about something else. Yeah. What, what, what? I get emotional okay. because okay, yeah. I've come through this. I've come through this. Yeah. I'm still here today. Mm. Like I said, Steve Dalton and the brave men and women that stood Credit beside me. Yeah, I will. I will be grateful for them to the mm. day I die. Mm. You know, I mentioned their names in my book. I didn't mention the names of the family or the gang that had attacked me or the man that shot mm. me because I will not glorify them. Do you understand? But the men and women that stood beside me on that day, the 26th mm. of July, 1998, I named them in my book. I took them down to the Grosvenor House Hotel in London when Mike Tyson was over mm. to meet Mike Tyson. Mm. And when we went into the hotel, Mike Tyson said, Joe, any more trouble at your pub and I'm landing. <laughs> <laughs> These people that worked me on the... Wow. 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 Mike knows about this. I said, of course he does. He's my boyhood friend. I said, I tell him mm. all the things that happened in my life. And mm. this was an incident in my life that... Should not have happened. Mm. I'm glad that I came through. But I said, you are here today. And the reason I'm here today is because you helped me on mm. that day. Then people helped me. Yeah. And I'm still friends with How them. How many of them were you? Because there was nine. 30. Nine. Nine yeah. versus 37. Nine, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was. Wow. Two of them Xboxes. No, a lot of them Xboxes. I tell a lie. Mm. I tell a lie. There was... Um, was uh, do you want me to name them if, if they're okay with that? Yeah, I wouldn't mind naming them James Campbell, mm-hmm. very personal friend of mine, ex pro boxer, 15 pro fights, mm-hmm. Steve Dalton, Big Lurch, GT, Big Lurch. used to do my door, Danny Brown, Tommy McGill, Mike's business partner, 
the woman that fought alongside me, Steve Dalton's sister, Cathy Dalton. You know, give her praise. She mm. stood and fought a woman. Um, Stephen, Steve Dalton's wife, Jason McAdinnan's sister, Tina McAdinnan. Those was, he fought. Um, it was a bad day. Mm. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a horrible day. But these men and women, and I, I, I loved them dearly. You know, there were friends of mine from the pub, customers of mine in the pub. But that day there was a band of brothers and sisters, you know, like what you see in a movie. But these people, these people put their lives on the line for no financial gain, for friendship and love Lord of each other. Steve Dalton says to me many, many times we've spoken about it. He said, Joe, my wife and sister was in that pub. He said, if them animals had got in the door, what damage would it have done to them? He said, I, I fought for them. I said, Steve, as far as I'm concerned, you fought for me and for every customer that was in that pub. Mm. And I was singing your praises to my last breath. You know, because he was, and still is, one of the bravest men I've ever met in my life. Do you still have the pub, Joe? No, no, the pub's been knocked to the ground. Um, it's, it's the houses now. Did you have it long after that? Yeah, did you? Yeah, yeah, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't let them, I wouldn't let them. They didn't beat me on the twenty sixth of July, nineteen ninety eight, and if I'd have closed after that day, they would have won. Mm. So we kept that pub going. Me and my business partner kept it going until two thousand and and one. But unfortunately, and I'm ashamed to say, I turned to crime to keep the pub going, because if I'd have closed the pub, I would have glorified. Them animals that attacked. I won't even call them animals. I won't even call them animals. I call them scum. Animals wouldn't do to each other what these scum tried to do to me. Mm -mm. You know, and um, I turned to crime because when I was charged. What was the charge? It was uh, one of them numbers where they. It was it. Um, um, oh, what the like an ABH type of thing. Okay. Section. Was it section 19 or something like that? 16. I can't remember. One of them numbers, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> One of them numbers. It's wounding with intent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We right? It's yeah. like an attempted murder. Mm. You know, but it's one of them numbers, anyway. I don't know the numbers. I'd never been in trouble in my life before. And at the time, uh, my ex missus, she was running away with Michael Flatley, the River Dance guy. That was no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was all over the world's news, yeah. yeah. Was it? Yeah, she was, I was a sinking ship. I was gone. I was finished. I was, her eyes, it was over, you know, and uh, she was away having an affair with, uh, at the time, the biggest star in the world. He was, he was huge. A, he was earning a million pounds a week. Fair. Yeah. yeah. I'd have probably cleared off it myself, to tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> a million pounds a week he was on, you know, so I could understand the, uh, I could understand the, the appeal, attraction. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, that that was that was all over the world's news, and um, so at the time I was I was having a legal battle with her over over my house in Ireland. Then I was on uh, the the criminal charges with the police for um, defending myself, and then the brewery was trying to evict me because they said I wasn't a fit and proper person in the pub. So I was fighting on three fronts. Did the judge kick you out, or was there a trial? No, there's trials. I had a trial. I won a oh, trial. Oh, God. But um, at the time, I was spending money that I hadn't got. Mm. I sold my watch that my mum and dad got me for my 18th birthday, the ring they got me for my 21st. I sold my car. I sold everything I had, you know, mm. to pay legal battles. I wasn't getting legal aid. And um, the VAT money that I'd saved to pay the VAT bill for the pub, I used that. And um, anything that I could possibly sell, you know, and... 
But turning to crime, I probably sold my soul, you know, mm. because... Uh, was it prote- turned, protection, was it? Yeah, well, the thing was, I, I, I got involved then with, with, with stolen cars. Mm. I had a, a chap come to the pub, and uh, I was at a very low ebb in my life, and he said, uh, would you mind if I park stolen cars on your pub car park, Joe, I'll give you money. And I just thought to myself, you can park tanks on my car park, I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> at, at that stage, I was so mm. low, I was... I was I was I was I was a beaten man, you know, fighting these legal battles, running out of money, you know, and I didn't want to lose the pub because, like I said, if I'd have lost the pub, I would have glorified them animals, that them scum, that had attacked me on the day, and I didn't want to glorify them. So I turned to crime to make money to pay for legal fees because what was being done to me was a crime, you know. The brewery shouldn't have been trying to evict me. I was defending their premises. They should have helped me. You know, the fact that she was trying to take my house in Ireland, she was running away with a man who was earning a million pounds a week. He had houses all over the world. She didn't need my house in Ireland. But it was wrong that was being done to me. And to be charged for defending myself. The statute law in the UK says you're allowed to defend yourself. So what did I do that was wrong? You know, all I'd done was defend my life and defend anybody that I could that day. And they defended me that stood beside me, alongside me. You know, so really uh, what I was doing wasn't a crime. But what was being done to me was a crime. But I did get involved in crime. And I'm ashamed to say that I did. And I, I, I do tell the story when I was in court. The only time at that stage where I saw my daddy cry was when his daddy died. I'd watched him cry that day for the first time in my life. And I didn't understand what was going on. We'd come home from school and uh, my mother met us in the hallway. My younger brothers and sisters were already in and in bed. It was half past four, and she's screaming, let's get up to bed, get up to bed, get up to bed. And it's only half past four. Batman was on at five o'clock. But I didn't know, I, I was worried because my mum was running around like I had this chicken. Anyway, I went up the stairs and sat on the landing, I'm arm around my next brother to me, Emmett. Mother brothers and sisters were in bed, and I'm, I'm cradling him in my arms, I'm looking down through the banisters, and what's what seemed like ages probably an hour, hour and a half, then my dad came in from work, 6 o'clock, 6.30, he was, he was home at the time, and I saw my mum talk to him in the hall, I couldn't hear what she was saying, but I just remember looking down through the banisters, me and my brother, and I saw him take his head in his hands, and I saw him crying, and in every boy's eyes, his dad's the toughest man on the planet, so in my eyes, my daddy's the toughest man on the planet, and I watched him cry, and uh, I got the fright of my life, I, I felt so scared, scared that I've ever been... Even up to now, that was the scaredest I'd ever been in my life. Even that day on the 26th of July, I wasn't as scared as I was that day. Because now, my my dad was crying, and, I, and my world caved in. And um, we found out afterwards that his daddy had died. Mm. And it hit him hard. And um, that was the reason why he was crying. Well, years later, when I was in court, and I was found guilty in court of a crime, and my dad was up in the gallery... I remember looking up in the, the gallery and I saw him hold his head in his hands. And it was exactly the same as him crying and holding his head in his hands when his daddy had died. And I felt sick, even now, talking about it. I'm not going to cry. Mm. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. Here's a quick word from our sponsor. <laughs> know what that sound means? It's more sales being racked up on Shopify. What do you think of Shopify, Jen? I absolutely love Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to sell, grow and make money for your business. 
Have you used it to boost your business? 100%, yeah. <laughs> so Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell from anywhere in the world. From creating your online shop in your own look. To finding new customers to scaling your burning idea. You can do it all from one place. With no need for skills in design or coding. It's how every minute of every day, a new seller makes their first sale with Shopify and you can join them. So what is your favourite UK-based business that's found success with Shopify? It's got to be Gymshark. They have grown massively thanks to Shopify. Now it's your turn to start selling today with Shopify for free. And thanks to 24-7 support, Shopify is there to help you every step of the way. Sign up for a free 14-day trial at shopify.co.uk slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Go to shopify.co.uk slash Sean right now to grow your business today. So that's shopify.co.uk forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor. I felt sick. I feel sick. I feel sick now. Do you feel ashamed? Ashamed, yeah. Yeah. I feel ashamed. Even now, I won't cry. I'm not going to cry. I've cried loads of times. I cry all the time. But um, It's good to cry. Yeah, yeah. There's no harm. Really yeah. cry. And I, I wouldn't... I, and I felt sick. And I've said then, and I mean it, I will never, in my whole life, I'll never get into trouble again. <laughs> it's like when I, my mum flew 5,000 miles to visit me in Arizona prison. And she's been outside waiting in the desert for hours and, you know, patting people down, sniffer dogs and all that. And then you see her... It's horrible, isn't it? You remember that for the rest of your life. Mm. When, when I had a day out from prison, I was in a, they, they call it your flat date, your facility license eligibility date. Mm. And you get to a day where you're a, a model prisoner and um, I saved a man's life in prison. I saved a, How long were you in prison yeah. for? I originally got two and a half years. And when I was in prison, they tried to increase um, the sentence to seven. Oh. Yeah, I had, a, I, had a run, I had a bit of a an issue with certain members of the West Midlands Police. Not them all. There's mm. plenty of good police officers there. But there's bad and all. You get bad plumbers. You get profession. bad electricians. Yeah, yeah. You get bad barbers. You get bad hairdressers. You get bad painters and decorators. So you can't not get a bad policeman. Mm. Do you understand? But that's walk. That's all walks of life. Mm. You can't blame the force yeah. because of one person or two people. Mm. You can't blame the... The painting decorator, the painters and decorators, because of one bad painter, yeah. you know. You, 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 Go- government policy is to do with a lot of it as well, because we work with a lot of police, yeah. and they're very, very well-meaning, the very well-meaning people. But then orders mm. come down from above, and they end up doing things they don't really want to do. A lot of them. Yeah. Unfortunately, today, the police force, in my eyes, is a bit of a police farce, mm. right? Because they're not allowed to be forceful anymore, mm. you know. When I was a kid, if I'd done something bold and I saw a policeman, I would run hell for leather, <laughs> right? Mm. Now these kids, and that's all they are, out stabbing each other to death, mm. 14, mm. 15 years of age, they have no respect for the police force mm. because the police force isn't a force anymore. Mm. Because if that policeman takes out his baton and gives them a belt and a baton, he's reprimanded. Mm. You know, spare the rod, spoil the child. I got mm. battered when I was a kid. It didn't do me any harm. Because you know what? Because I respect others, I respect my elders, and I have self-respect. Mm. A lot of these youth today don't have that in them. Out of control. You know, out of control. Mm. You know, and I think that the police need to be given better powers of arrest. Mm. Prisons, prisons are like a holiday camp, right? Mm. And I, I, I was in there. Playstations, TVs, three meals a day, central heating. 
the soldiers that have fought in World War II mm. haven't got three meals a day. Veterans of foreign wars, they haven't got three meals a day. Soldiers that have served this country, living on the street, you know. Now, I'm not being disrespectful to the Germans, but my sister's married to a German. But see, if it wasn't for the <laughs> British Army, we'd be speaking German today. Mm. You know, the British Army beat Hitler, mm. you know, and I will, I will rave about I know we've had our history with the British Army in Northern mm. Ireland, but the British Army done what they had to do to beat Hitler. And I thank them for that. You know, I, I admire them. I admire their courage, mm. you know, in different battles and campaigns that they've been in. Yeah, we've had the history in Ireland. I don't get into politics. But some of these soldiers are living on the streets now. Some of these old soldiers that fought in World War II haven't got the money to turn the heating on, haven't got three meals a day. So why should a convict mm. be getting luxuries and special treatment that soldiers that have served this country well it's haven't sad, got? It's sad. More than Heartbreaking. Ha more than half my friends in prison were ex-soldiers as well because they come back, didn't get any help, and then got on street drugs for the PTSD and ended up... Most prisoners these days are people with drug, drug issues... They need to take them out and put in the paedophiles, the rapists, the women beaters, the predators. That's who should be in prison. They need to increase those sentences. Listen, let me tell you something now. Mm. There's not enough of a deterrent to turn people away from doing crime. If yeah, the punishment yeah. was there to fit the crime, people would think twice about doing the crime. Yeah, correct. You know, we had one woman who was molested by her own dad. And he oh. wrote a letter to the judge mocking the whole process because he knew they could only give him so many years. He was out within a couple of years. That is messed up. Listen, let me tell you something now, right? I believe that they should bring back the death sentence, right? And I will stand up and say, no problem whatsoever, bring back the death sentence. When you have no doubt whatsoever that this person has took lives, not just one life, many lives, and that they've been put into these mental institutions where they're getting mollycoddled, these prisons where they're getting cared for, that money would be better spent on caring for sick people mm -hmm. and for elderly people, you know. Yep. Put them to sleep. I'm not saying rip them apart. I'm not <laughs> saying tear them apart or feed mm. them to the dogs. Mm. You know, give them an injection mm. like they do in certain states in America when there's no doubt, mm. when there's no doubt. You know, if there's an element of doubt that you can't take that person's life. Mm. But when there's no doubt, give them the lethal injection mm. and send them to hell. Do you understand? Because that's where they're going anyway. Mm. They're not going to heaven. They've committed horrible crimes. So why keep them alive? Why leave them in the lap of luxury and let the, the victims or the families of these people that have mm. killed, that they've killed, suffer? And I think there should be money spent more on catering and caring for, for the sick and the elderly than catering and caring for some of these sickos that are in prison. And give the kids things to do as well so they're not on the streets. Yes. Boxing, no boxing. Rehabs, and... youth clubs. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wear a T-shirt today, the Big Joe Egan Boxing Gym. Yeah. A very personal friend of mine, Dave Mariner, who, who runs a charity yeah. called the Unmasked Mental Health. He works with a lot of soldiers that are suffering with the PTSD. Mm. A very, very good man. Mm. You know, a, a pillar of the community. He's gone through the government now, the Big Joe Egan Boxing Academy. We opened the first one down in Leeds. Hopefully we'll be opening the second one now in Hastings. I'm with the guys and the kids on, on Friday in, in, in the boxing gym. I'm very proud that they've used my name. You know, mm. I, I wasn't uh, anything special in the boxing, but I, 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 I fought to the best of my ability and I've been a good ambassador for boxing because mm. boxing doesn't just need great fighters, it needs great ambassadors. Mm. And I, I think I'm a, I'm a good ambassador for the, for the sport, you know, and... Um, to have this gym named after me and have these gyms, mm -hmm. you know, that are going to open more in the future, 
but Dave has, has done this for me and I, and, and, and I thank Dave Mariner for that but uh, he works like I said with a lot of people suffering with PTSD but through unmasked mental health and it's 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 great what he does but the gyms are, are going to be like a youth club they're going to be a safe haven you don't have to go in there and box there's kids going into the gym that need protection from the bullies the police stations are being closed so they might not be able to run from the school to the house, which is a safe... Well, the house isn't even a safe haven anymore. No. Because when I got bullied, I got physically bullied. Now, if you get a bruise or a cut or a broken arm or a broken leg or a broken jaw, the doctor can say to you, that's going to heal in mm. six weeks, eight weeks, ten weeks. See, the mental torture that children are getting with computers, you know, cyber keyboard bullies, and over the phones. There is no time date that they can say that torture will end that will heal a bruise a cut a broken arm a fracture they can give a date when that will heal but the torture that these children and young adults and adults mm -hmm. are getting through the bullies through the, the the media through the social media through the, the the keyboards there's no date for when they're going to heal and that is a worse form of bullying mental torture yeah. you know and the guy whose life you saved in prison was he getting bullied no he was a prison officer Oh, what happened? Wow. What happened? Prison officer. He was an ex an ex soldier. Yeah. That to subsidise his pension, he was working as a part time prison officer. I was in an open prison at that stage, and the man that took a heart attack. Now, when I was a kid, I was in the Saint John's Ambulance Brigade. You know, I learned a little bit of the first day. My dad and mum would encourage us to do lots of different things mm -hmm. to stay off the street. I was in the Sea Scouts. I was in the boxing gym. I used to go to the youth club, and I was in the Saint John's Ambulance Brigade, mm -hmm. and I learned a little bit of the first aid. So I attended to the, to the officer and um, sent, set off the alarm and um, kept the man as comfortable as I possibly could during his, 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 his heart attack. And then the security prison officers, they, they got there in time to get him to the hospital and he, and he survived. Mm -hmm. And I got a commendation letter from the governor of the prison. And um, I was just happy that I was able to help somebody. Wow, that man didn't fantastic. put me in prison. Yeah. He never put me in prison. Mm. That prison officer did not put me in prison. He was there to supervise my stay in prison, you know, to make sure that I was safe in prison, mm -hmm. you know, that I was... I did was... any of the other inmates give him shit? We, we just interviewed Alex. Listen. We just interviewed Alex Reed. Yeah. Alex he's, just, a good guy. He's, just been in, he's just been in prison. Yeah, so I believe. And he's talking about how as soon as he went in, someone was like, oh, so you're Alex Reed, and they all found out. Because you're a big name... Was there anything similar happening with you in there? No, I I, I, I pride myself on my manners, Sean, you know. Yeah. And I, I pride myself on my manners. Mm. I don't claim to be any tough guy. Mm. I don't claim to be a hard man. People say it. Mm. You know, Mike Tyson says it. Like I said, I could take a beating, you know. But manners has got me through life mm. more than being a tough guy, more than being a... a, a you know, being able to look after myself. There's always Managed. someone who wants to test you, isn't it? If I if I can have a fight with him and he's a big name, then I'm going to be a big name. Don't you run across people like that in prison? I've, 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 met, I've, met them, I've met them through life, you know. Yeah. I do, they do say, oh, you think you're a hard man. You think you're a tough guy. No, I don't think I'm a hard man. I don't think I'm a tough guy. Mm. You know, I could probably take you. I say, you probably could. <laughs> you know, diffuse it through civility. as quick as I can. Yeah. You know, yeah. because to tell you the truth, when I was in prison, when I was in prison, I won't name the chap's name, I met a man that had killed a man on the street. And I was the gym orderly in, in, the, in the prison. And I saw this guy skipping. I saw him skipping. 
And I thought, wow, this guy can use a skipping rope. So I thought, he must have boxed at some stage of his life because that's a big part of the boxing regime training, skipping. So beautiful physique on the man. And it was in open prison at that stage. So uh, I introduced myself to him. And I said, they obviously boxed. He said, yeah, he said, I had 10 professional fights. How do you know? I said, because the way you can skip. I said, you're, you're brilliant on the skipping rope. So I said to him, I said, what are you in for? He said, I'm in for manslaughter. I said, oh, you killed a man. He said, yeah. He said, I'm not proud of it. He said, I was in the pub. He said, having a drink. He said, the row started in the pub. I defused the row. He said, I didn't want to fight the guy. I was a professional boxer. He said, so I left the pub. He said, the guy followed me to my home. He said, but it was outside my home. He said, screaming abuse. He said, I got my wife and my children mm. in my home. He said, I was so scared for them, not for me. So he said, I walked out of my front door and he said, the guy swung at me and he said, I slipped it and I hit him and he fell and he hit his head and he died. He said, when I was in the dock, he said, the four security guards got around me and he said, I pushed them back. He said, I'm not jumping the dock. He said, but they knew what was coming. They knew the sentence that was coming. He said, I didn't know the sentence that was coming. When the judge said life with a recommendation of 10 years, he said, my legs buckled. He said, I went weak. He said, and the four security guards kept me up. He said, so I'm coming to the end of the 10 years now. He said, they've put me into open prison. He got out on his first date that he was able to leave after 10 years. I wished him well. Oh, you know, that was just... Shouldn't have a, even been in the first Should place. never have been in there, you know. Should never have been Protecting in there. The man, the man didn't deserve 10 years in prison. I met another chap in there that had killed a man on the rugby pitch and he only got three and a half years. He stomped, what, scrum or something? He stomped on the guy's head on the rugby pitch oh, and shit. a little bit severe, whatever he'd done, and he ended up getting three and a half years for the, for the, for the, for the tackle or whatever he'd done. And... Um, and I thought to myself, like, three and a half for one guy, life with a record 10 years to do the guy. It was a little bit cruel. And he's got, he's got, I met a chap in there that was on one of them life tariffs and he bought a stolen stereo and he was back in for seven years. Yeah, IPP. Yeah. Yeah. Life license, you know. So you've got to be very, very careful. And that chap that I met in there, if he's watching this program or watching the, listening to the interview, I can't remember his name for the life of me anyway, but I wish him well in life and hope he's never gone back in. I'm not saying because he was an ex-boxer, but he didn't deserve that sentence. I know it was tragic, the man that that, that, that died during the, the punch-up. But How did you maintain your fitness and uh, health and food regimen inside? When I was in the prison, my first job I got was in the catering and I was in the kitchens and um, that was fine. That was handy. And then... Um, what was the next job I got? I was in three different prisons. But I made the most of it when I was in there. But the best job I had was the gym orderly. But yeah, the food was okay. You know, was it? Plenty, plenty of it, three meals a day. Yeah. Plenty of it, you know. And uh, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was hard at times. It was harder for my family than for me. Were they visiting you? I got visits. I got visits regular, yeah. And um, I remember one time when I was out on a day release... Um, Paddy Finn, the ex-Irish heavyweight champion, who brought me to Birmingham to work and to live. He was the reason I settled in Birmingham. His family had founded my amateur boxing club. And I loved the man dearly. And um, he gave me the opportunity, when his boxing career finished, 
he said he had to retire. He went into the pub trade. So when my boxing career finished, he gave me an opportunity to come and work for him. I did uh, an MVQ certificates, a BOI certificates. I left school when I was 14 with two school, two swimming certificates, you know, 1,500 metres and 800 metres swimming certificates. I know I, like, I wasn't academic. And when I'd done these courses for Paddy, I'd done uh, two MPQs and a BII, British Institute of Inkeeping. I was very proud of myself and I became the licensee of his pub. But um, he arranged for my mum and my three aunties, my mum's three sisters, Linda, Geraldine and Catherine, to visit me. So I'm sitting, having a lemonade, because I don't drink alcohol, <laughs> at the side of Paddy Finn's pub, the Dubliner at the time, which was opposite <laughs> the bus station. I knew nothing about this. Oh. I was just having a day out oh. in the company of my friend Paddy Finn having a glass of lemonade, enjoying the sunshine. Mm. And I'm looking at the Dublin Hollyhead bus <laughs> pulling in the Birmingham bus mm. station. And I'm looking, my mum and my three aunties oh. are stepping off the bus. <laughs> and uh, even now, I was like, oh, I thought, is this an apparition? I was rubbing my eyes. Is <laughs> that my mum? It's not my auntie Linda, my auntie Geraldine, my auntie Catherine. I saw the four of them started screaming, ah! <laughs> and I looked at Paddy Finn and I knew he'd organised that. And it was a lovely day. They mm. stayed for the weekend. I, I only had the one day out of prison. But it was a lovely day. But I never asked my mum. I actually, I asked her not to visit me in prison. I said, please don't come over and visit me in prison. I said... I said, I don't want to have to go through, mm. but they have to go through to enter yeah. the prison to visit mm. me. My dad visited me in prison, and uh, I wasn't, I wasn't, um, I wasn't encouraging him to visit, but I couldn't discourage him. You know, he's not the sort of man that you tell <laughs> no to. You know, yeah. even as an adult now, you know, he's he's suffering a bit with the dementia. Mm. He's eighty four, but he's still he's still the daddy. You know, he's mm. still my dad. You know, and. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't, uh, I couldn't stop him coming to visit me to prison. I had a bit of more influence over my mum than I did over my dad. But she came, like I said, Paddy Finn arranged that day. And um, the time went too quick. It was just, it was just, but just to see her and embrace her and hold her, kiss oh. her and hug her and that, it was just lovely. But uh, yeah, I made the, I made the most of my time in prison. I, I, I trained and uh, got myself fit and healthy and, when I came out of prison, I made a comeback into boxing. Did you have a plan that you made while you were in prison for when you got out? Just to fight again. I was going to box, <clears throat> box again. You know, there was a big write-up in the boxing news. It said George Foreman made the comeback after 10 years. Big Joe Egan made the comeback after 12 years. <laughs> to get mentioned in the same paragraph as George yeah. Foreman was something else. One of the greatest heavyweight champions of all time. But I made a comeback and... Um, I wasn't Joe the convict anymore, I was Joe the boxer again. Yeah. And it made my mum and dad very proud again because I'm not saying they're ashamed of me when I went to prison, but it wasn't... Uh, was it your highlight? No. Oh. You know, so when I made the comeback, and I needed the money as well. Mm. You know, I was broke. I didn't want to go back into any sort of crime. No way. And uh, How does it feel to fight in front of, like, a massive audience? Do you know something, Sean? And it's not... It's not... It's not... Um, it's not hard. When you walk into the ring, you're scared. You know, you get into the ring, you face your opponent, you touch gloves. You're scared. When the bell rings, the fear goes, you know. And I remember one of my, my, my first actual pro fight. I remember the medical. Who was um, your first pro fight? John Williams. Oh, okay. Uh, he's dead now, God rest him. He died of cancer. 
Here's my first profile. He was coming off two good knockout wins. He was after knocking out two of my pals. He was after knocking out one of the men that stood beside me in the pub. Wow. Man called wow. John McBean, yeah? He was after knocking John out in the fifth round. Mm. Years later, that man stood beside me in my pub wow. at the battle, John mm. McBean. And my, my friend Warren Wigan, the featherweight, mm. he, he, he knocked out two of my clubmates when we boxed Dublin against Birmingham. So these were men that I'd boxed with and um, they stood beside me, you know, and... Uh, yeah, so John John Williams beat me, boxed me in my first pro fight. I, I beat him in my first pro fight. So as soon, the soon as the bell actually. goes, then it's just tunnel tunnel, tunnel yeah. vision. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. getting the job done. Yeah. But my first pro fight, I'm at the weigh-in and I'm looking around the the room. There's five or six big guys with tattoos and muscles, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, I'm not fighting him. Oh, I'm not fighting <laughs> him. <laughs> 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 you know, they're impressive looking men. They yeah. Think, oh Jesus! Like anyway, I've gone to see the doctor. My heart was racing. So scared. This was just a weigh-in. And the doctor said to me, Are you nervous, Joe? Stevie Wonder could see I was nervous. I was terrified. <laughs> I, I went, Yeah, I'm nervous, doctor. He said, I've just examined your opponent and he's twice as nervous. Happy days. <laughs> Happy days. But when you walk to the ring, you have that fear. George Foreman, I mentioned George Foreman again. There's a video out there called Champions Forever. And there's five great world champions on there. George Foreman, Joe Frazier. Larry Holmes, Muhammad Ali and Ken Norton, five of the greatest champions of all time. And uh, they're talking about their experiences in the life and the boxing. And George Foreman said, when he boxed Ken Norton, he said, I looked across the ring. He said, and he was the finest specimen of a man I've ever seen. He was chiseled. The muscles were on top of muscles. He said, I walked to the centre of the ring. He said, I eyeballed Ken. Ken eyeballed me. He said, I was so glad that Ken didn't look down because my knees were shaking. <laughs> 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 Major George, George Foreman, one of the greatest heavyweight wow. champions of all time, saying he was scared. Yeah. You know? And that's the great thing about the boxing. If you can climb into that ring and you can fight your opponent, male or female, men and women are doing it now. If you can fight, nothing in life will phase you. You mm. can go and do mm. interviews for PLC companies. You can go and do exams. You can go and do anything you mm. want because... There is nothing in life that will be more scarier than walking to that boxing ring to fight. And then they walk to the cage. Mm. They walk to the cage to fight. They walk to the octagon to fight. Anybody that fights, any form of fighting, martial arts, K1, Muay Thai, you know, I admire them all. I respect them all. Because you play football, you play golf, you play tennis, you play basketball. You don't play fighting. Fighting isn't a game. It's a sport. You know, you don't go in there to kill your opponent. Mm. You know, tragically, there is, is fatalities, but there's fatalities on the rugby pitch. There's mm. fatalities in the Formula One racing. Mm. You know, there are fatalities in sports. It's not your intention to kill your opponent. It's your intention to win by the fairest way possible, not yes. by cheating. Mm. You know, you don't want to get in there and headbutt your opponent to cut him to the bone to win. It's not a nice way to win. It has been happening, you know, People win fights by 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 cheating, mm. but it's not it's not a nice way to win. I wouldn't want to win by cheating. How did you become um, Mike Tyson's most formidable sparring partner? When I went to the to America to box, I boxed um, a man called um, William Dawson. I think his name, big Marine sergeant. And I was only seventeen. He battered me. <laughs> but I stayed on my feet. I stayed on my feet. Took the beating, and then. Um, Floyd Patterson was in attendance. He, he was married to an Irish lady from Offaly and he took a great interest in the Irish team. Paul Fitzgerald, the featherweight, he still lives in America now. He lives in Upper Derby in Philadelphia. I've visited him a few times over the years. He won. He, he was very impressive in winning. 
I lost, but whatever I did in losing, Floyd Palace took an interest in me. He said, you've got a good chin, you've got a big heart. He said, you haven't got much skills. I've never had much skills. He said, uh, I can work on your skills. He said, you've got the courage, you're born with the courage. You cannot give a person courage. They've either got it or they haven't got it. If they haven't got courage, boxing isn't for you. Mm. You know, and um, I knew I had courage. Floyd Palace knew I had courage. I had a good chin. I took some good beating in my life, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he gave me the chance to stay on in America. And uh, I went to, I phoned my mum. I said, mum, I'm staying in America. Oh, son, she said, you'll never come home. I said, I'll be home next year. I said, I'm home next year, mum. And he took me to Gleason's gym. I sparred with a couple of pro heavyweights in Gleason's gym. Mark Tucker was one. I can't remember the other chap's name. Anyway, Al Gavin and Bob Jackson, who who had bought the original gym of Costa Motto, who was the man that looked after Mike Tyson. They said there's a young heavyweight in the Catskills called Mike Tyson looking for sparring partners. 17 years of age, same age, actually six months younger than me. Mm. I was so happy to hear this because I'd been fighting men because I was big for my age, but I hadn't got that man strength. I was on the doors when I was 15. You know, I, I felt in my mind I was a big man. I was a mature man. I wasn't. I was still a teenage boy. But I was fighting men. But when I heard Mike Tyson was similar age to me, as it turned out, six months younger than me, I'd never knew who Mike Tyson was. He was knocking out men left, right and centre. I didn't know this. So when I got to the Catskills, I met Cus, God rest him, and Marnie and Camille and Tom Patsy and Jay Bright and a few of the other people that were there. And then I met Mike. Mike was smaller than me, younger than me. And he spoke with a little bit of a lisp. So I thought, I'm going to batter you. <laughs> was I wrong? But he was so nice. He yeah. welcomed me, he embraced me, and he was fascinated with the history of Irish boxing. He loved the relationship that Mr. Eastwood had with Barry McGuigan at the time, who I went to go professional with years later. He loved that relationship. It was like a father and son relationship at the time, and he had that relationship with Cuss. And he was so warming and welcoming. Took me to the top of the house. He lived at the top of the house. And he had all the old senior reels of fights. Jim Jacobs and Bill Caton, who was management team, they, they had access to the biggest library in the world of fight footage. And to me, there's only so much boxing you can watch. But to mm. Mike Tyson, there wasn't enough. He used to sit and watch hours and hours and hours. Mm -hmm. And he used to say to me, Joe, if that left hook had landed, that would have changed the whole history of that weight division. <laughs> <laughs> I used to say, oh my God, Mike was so engrossed in the sport. Now I love the sport, but not as much as he loved the sport. He was so devoted to the sport. He loved it. But what I didn't realise at the time was the humble beginnings. And as I spoke earlier on, all fighters have humble beginnings. But some fighters have more humble beginnings than others. And Mike Tyson's introduction into the world wasn't a very nice introduction. He was running wild on the streets of Brownsville. Mm. Now, Brownsville in Brooklyn isn't a particularly nice area. I won't slate it, but it's not a particularly nice area. And Mike, as a 10-year-old child, was running wild on them streets, trying to fend for himself, trying to make ends meet. I had hard times. My times were blissful compared to the times mm. Mike Tyson had. Even with all his success and all his achievements in life, I still wouldn't want of his introduction into this world. I'm going to tell you the story now in a second, that this story, this, 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 this I'll tell you now, I'll tell you this story now actually. Mike Tyson used to speak to my mum on the phone, regular. Now I used to get battered by Mike. 
I was going to ask, what was it like when you the first time you got in the ring with him? I'll tell you this now, right? When we 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 met and we became friends, and 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 the next morning jogged together and travelled on the minibus to the gym. Before we got onto the minibus, I saw all these big powerful men appear, and I thought, "We're two boys. We're going to box together." And these powerful men are going to box together. Little did I know that these men were the men that were going to spar with Mike. They were men like walking to the gallows. The heads were on the chest. They looked so solemn and sad. And I thought, I'm happy. I feel confident. I've got the measure of this kid. You know what I mean? I was, <laughs> I honestly got, you know, I'm bigger than him. I'm older than him. I had a lot more amateur fights than him. Travelled on the minibus. I was so calm and relaxed and confident. I know. I know. But these were all so sad and they were all, they were, they knew what was coming. Stupid Paddy didn't know what was coming, right? I didn't know. Anyway, when we got to the gym, I was comfortable, I was relaxed, I was put my bandages on, I warmed up and these guys were all sitting there. Like this. <laughs> I couldn't understand what it was all about. But then Kush said, right, glove up, we warmed up, we're getting ready to spar. I looked around and Mike was in the ring, pacing the ring. And he had his shirt off at that stage. And his physique at 17, his chest, his neck, his biceps, his triceps, his back, his body was incredible for 17 years of age. He just looked, he looked like the lion walking in a cage in the boxing ring up and down. Cos pointed to one of the big men to get in. Mike knocked him out, knocked him spark out. Knocked <laughs> him spark out. The guy hit the deck, was unconscious before he hit the deck. And I tell people, I shit myself at that moment. Oh, yeah, I, was gonna say. I tell people, I ruined a good pair of underpants at that moment. <laughs> you know, I, I have no shame to say it. Mm. I thought, there's no way a 17-year-old boy should have that power. Mm. Two more got in, knocked both of them out. I was number four. I got battered from pillar to post. I was battered for three minutes. Smashed to bits. But I lasted three minutes. Longer than the three previous men that got in. I got out, a couple more got in. They stayed on their feet. I was back in again. Eight minutes later, I took another three minutes beating because I did six minutes with him that day. But the madness in me, because I believe the fight, you've got to have a little bit of madness in you, you know. Yeah. And I had a little bit of madness in me. And I believed I would get the better of him one of these days. I never did, you know. People say to me, and they ask me all the time, did you ever hurt Mike Tyson? I said, I hurt Mike Tyson every time we sparred. His knuckles were in bits. <laughs> <laughs> I hurt his knuckles. He battered me for nearly two years. Mm. But I'm very proud to say I never hit the deck. He made me cry loads of times, hospitalised me a couple of times. What? But, yeah, I went to hospital one time. My headgear was on. My head's swollen up. I had to enter the, enter the casualty with my headgear on. And um, I was an ambassador for the Midlands Air Ambulance. And I spoke this at the Midlands Air Ambulance Awards dinner. I said, the way an ambulance gets to uh, to accidents and gets victims of accidents to hospitals very, very quick. When I had to go to hospital from the Catskills, I had to go in a car. I wish there was an air ambulance then to get me to the hospital. Quick, you know? <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it was it was uh, hard, but it made me the man I am today, you know. Every fight I had helped me become the man I am today. Mm. You know, I speak to a lot of men that I fought, Bobby Wells, I boxed against England. He was ABA champion. He went on to win the Olympic bronze medal. He helped me become the man I am today. Cahill Ryan, he was head doorman in the nightclub that I worked in. We battered each other in the All-Ireland finals. Then went to work on the nightclub that night. All busted mm -hmm. up. People looking at us going, there must have been a bad fight tonight. He helped me become the man I am today. And every man that I shared the ring with has helped me become the man I am today. 
You know, one of the guys that phoned me earlier on today, Pat Pasley, is a barrister. He trains barristers now. I used to spar with him when we were kids, and they all helped me. They 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 helped me through this journey. You know, the beatings. Some days I'd get the better of them. Other days, others would get the better of me. With Mike Tyson, I never got the better of him. He battered me for two years, but he helped me because in my mind I believed, and there's a lot of psychological warfare. I believed that if I could take Mike Tyson's punishment, I could take anybody's punishment. And when I got the opportunity to fight Lennox Lewis, I got beaten by a, a man in the New York Golden Gloves called um, Sinclair Babb. Sinclair Babb beat me in the New York Golden Gloves. I won a bronze medal in the Empire Games. I won the New York State Golden Gloves. But Sinclair Babb beat me in the New York City Golden Gloves. He went on to win the New York City Golden Gloves. He boxed in the American Championships and he boxed a man in the American Championships called Camulo Doom. And Camulo Doom won the American title. So I lost to a man the lost to eventual American champion, eventual American champion. Well, Camulo Doom, he boxed against Canada and he got knocked out by Lennox Lewis. Lennox Lewis was the number two in the world when I boxed him in 1985. It was the New York All-Stars, New York State and New York City against the Canadian All-Stars. The New York star at the time was a man called Frankie Lyles. He went on to win the World Welterweight title. I shared a room with Frankie when we trained in the Olympic Training Centre in Lake Placid, Lake Placid to prepare for the tournament against the Canadians. So I shared a room with Frankie. He was from Syracuse. And a uh, great guy. Like I said, he went on to win the World Super Middleweight title. And Lennox Lewis was the star of the American team. Or sorry, the star of the Canadian team who went on to win the World title. So the two stars went on to shine bright. But they couldn't get anybody to box Lennox Lewis because the New York champion had been knocked out by the man that got knocked out on a full international, Canada versus America, so the American champion had been knocked out by Lennox Lewis and the New York champion had been knocked out by the American champion. So they were struggling to get a champion, a fighter to fight Lennox Lewis. So I said, I'll fight him. They said, Joe, you've been beaten by the man that got knocked out by the man that Lennox Lewis knocked out. I said, yeah, but he didn't knock me out. I said, I, I, I've took Mike Tyson's punishment. I will take Lennox Lewis's punishment. And I did, I got battered by Lennox Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got battered. But it was no shame. I stayed yeah. on my feet. I lost on points. You know, the good chin, you know, and uh, Lennox battered me. But not many can say they've been battered by yeah. Lennox. No, but stayed on my feet. Lennox, was on Mike <laughs> Tyson. Tyson. I was very proud, <laughs> very proud man. To, 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 people say, you've milked it, Joe. Yes, I've milked it. I'll continue to milk it. <laughs> because I've earned the right to yes, milk it. Yeah, I got battered absolutely. by Lennox Lewis. And I got battered by Mike Tyson. Mm. But I stayed on my feet. So I've every right to boast about it. Mm. I didn't beat them. I wasn't in their league. They were leagues above me. And you survived the Battle of the Pub? Survived mm. the Battle yeah, of the Pub, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. I've survived a lot of hardship in my life, you know. You said Mike was on the phone to your mum a bit. Oh, Mike used to speak to my mum all the time. And she used to say, oh, Mike, thank you so much for looking after my son, Joe. He was battering me week in, week out. <laughs> but I was getting minded. Mm. Cuss minded me. Camille minded me. Manny minded me. Jay minded mm. me. Tom minded me. Mm. You know, and and... and it was it was a nice place to be in the Catskills. Rip Van Winkle, they say, slept for 20 years up there. It was very tranquil and peaceful. The only time that it was violent was when we were sparring. Mm. Other than that, it was beautiful, mm. you know. I went to live in Newcastle for a while. I lived in Newcastle with the Hallett family. And Mr. Hallett, big Paddy Hallett, he's dead now, God rest him. Him and his wife, Margaret, they minded me when I lived in Newcastle. I boxed one of their sons, Michael. I sparred with the other son, Tony. And... I, 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 I was mind Does, in the boxing world it's the most cosmopolitan sport in the world 
you go to the remotest parts of Africa, the remotest parts of Asia, they might not be kicking a soccer ball or they might not be bouncing a basketball, but there'll be a kid punching the bag. It's the most cosmopolitan sport in the world. And the friendship and the respect and the love amongst the fight world, fighters, managers, trainers, there's a great camaraderie and friendship. And you get minded, you know, mm. and I've been minded everywhere I've went, through the boxing. But with, with, with my time in the Catskills, it was as good as my time in, in Newcastle as good as my time in, in Denmark, as good as my time in Germany, in the boxing camps, you know. What about Don King? I won't mm. talk about him. There's a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of parasites in boxing. There's a lot of people, I won't mention any names, but a lot of people that treat fighters as a piece of meat, mm. you know, and fighters aren't a piece of meat. You know, fighters are human beings and they deserve to be treated as human beings deserve to be treated, you know. Not like a commodity, not like a, a, a piece of meat. And sadly, some of the management, some of the promoters treat fighters like pieces of meat. And I, I, I don't think that's nice. Were you by any chance inspired by the Rocky movies? I love Rocky movies. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I love Sylvester Stallone. I think it's great. My friends yeah. are working. Mm. I have a friend, Eddie Hall, is working on the Expendables movie at the moment. Wow. I saw a, 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 um, Eddie's the world's strongest man. Yeah. And I met Eddie through my friend Lee. Mm. Lee has a, a business in Stoke called Low Cost Roofing. And Lee's an ex-soldier. He, he, he's an ex-squaddy and he employs a lot of ex-squaddies. And uh, Low Cost Roof in Stoke, a fantastic friend of mine. And he introduced me to Eddie Hall. I'm a massive fan of Eddie mm. Hall. And Eddie's in the new Expendable movies. And I watched him with Sylvester Stallone doing a shout out to Tyson Fury. And it was brilliant, right? Mm. And um, yeah, Sylvester Stallone, the Rocky stories, the Rocky films, amazing. Favourite yeah. Rocky movie fight? Do you know Mr. something? Mr. T. Club Alain. Club Alain. Mr. T was Club Alain. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you asked me. Oh, Dolph Lundgren. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he, he was, uh, Dolph Lundgren was uh, Ivan Drago. That's it, yeah. And yeah. then uh, the first one, the first one, um, do you know something? People don't understand this. You know, the Rocky story is actually based on a true story. Was it? Yes. Listen to this, that. right? Yeah. There was a man called, when, when Muhammad Ali won the world title, Muhammad Ali was going to do a tour of America, mm. the 50-state tour of America. He was going to fight the state champions. And some Armadan said, we're going to call it the Bummer Month Tour. How dare he call fighters bums, right? And you couldn't, you couldn't have a title like that, the Bummer Month Tour. <laughs> Mike, Ma, uh, Muhammad Ali was going to fight the state champions. And this Armadan was calling these fighters, the state champions, bums, right? I'm glad they didn't use that title. But Muhammad Ali was going to fight the state champion every month for 50 months. Atlantic City, Jersey, was the capital of boxing at the time. Vegas has since become the capital of boxing. So they were going to fight the New Jersey state champion in Atlantic City. Now, the New Jersey state champion at the time was a man called Chuck Webner from Bayonne, New Jersey. They called him the Bayonne Bleeder because he used to cut like Sir Henry Cooper used to cut. But he was a proud warrior. And he got the opportunity of a lifetime to fight as the state champion, to fight the heavyweight champion of the world. And he went in and he fought like a man possessed. He fought like a Trojan. He fought like a gladiator. But that's what boxers are. Boxers are modern-day Trojans, modern-day gladiators. And he gave Muhammad Ali one hell of a fight. Mm. Muhammad Ali said, I can't do this every month. I couldn't fight a man like this every month. He said, it stopped. The tour has stopped. One fight 
into a 55 so it was stopped anyway Chuck Webner wrote a script called the Rocky script Sylvester Stallone was his friend Sylvester Stallone was doing bit parts in films at the time and Chuck Webner went to the to the execs of Hollywood and he said I've got this script and I want you to read the script Chuck Webner Rocky Apollo Creed Muhammad Ali and that was based wow. on a true story the exec said we love the story we love it we'll buy it off you but we want so and so to play Rocky Joe Webner said no no my friend Sylvester Stallone is playing Rocky he said we'll give you more no no my friend Sylvester Stallone is playing Rocky he wouldn't give in to the, and he needed the money until his friend Rocky got accepted to play the part and then it won the Academy Award for the music because the mm. music and the Rocky I live in America oh. <laughs> That music, Shooting that, the pigeon. Listen, that music, that music is iconic. Yeah, the Rocky yeah, yeah. theme song is iconic. Oh, it you is, know? yeah. I trained to that music. Yeah. All fighters all over the world have trained to that music. Come out to it. Sylvester Stallone has helped with that film so many fighters. Yeah. And not just, not just fighters, but in life. Stallone, Rocky, the underdog. Because there's so many underdogs mm. in all walks of life. And Rocky was the underdog. Yeah. And he beat Apollo Creed to win the title. Then he beat Ivan Drago. Then he beat Clubber Lang. Then he beat Mason Dixie. Then he beat Tommy DeGon. He beat them all. <laughs> Rocky, <laughs> is, Rocky is an inspirational man. Yes. You know, so no matter what you're doing in life, you need inspiration. Mm. And if you can draw inspiration from any particular person. I talk about Michael Watson. Michael Watson, to me, is one of the greatest human beings. I idolise Muhammad Ali. I adore Muhammad Ali. God rest him. Heaven has gained what we've lost, right? Muhammad Ali was, to me, the greatest man to enter a boxing ring, one of the greatest men to enter the world. I used to run Ali Shuffle. But there's certain individuals alongside Muhammad Ali that need that praise. Michael Watson. Because I tell you about Michael Watson. Michael Watson was a man that sustained a bad bad injury in boxing mm. and he survived but they said he might never walk again the chances are he will never walk again mm. blessings of god he fought and he fought and he fought and he walked again he walked the london marathon it took him four days to walk the london marathon they say great men walk on the moon the first man to walk on the moon was um who was neil the armstrong neil armstrong yeah so Neil Armstrong, they say, is a great man that he walked on the moon. To me, that's great technology. I could walk on the moon if they brought me in a rocket. If that rocket big enough to bring me to the moon. You know, I could walk on the moon. That's great technology. You know, that's not a great man. That's great technology. Because any man could have sat in Neil Armstrong's seat. And any man could have stepped down off the rocket onto the moon if they'd have brought him to the moon. But a man that walks, and I'm taking nothing away from Neil Armstrong, right? I'm just saying a man that walks when they say mm. is never going to walk again. That's a great man. Mm -hmm. And Michael Watson is one of them men because they said he would never walk again. He walked the London Marathon. Four days it took him, but he walked the London Marathon. Oh. I did a dinner, a LIBA, London Xboxers Association dinner. And Michael Watson and Sir Henry Cooper were the guest speakers. God rest Sir Henry Cooper. And I was in a room full of Xboxers, British, European, Commonwealth, world champions, and sparring partners and journeymen. The room was full of tough guys and women. And... Mark Galt was in the room and I didn't realise who he was. 
and Sir Henry Cooper spoke. He said, we've got a young boxer in the room that sustained the same injuries that Michael Watson sustained. And he's here tonight with us. And we would like to call Mark Gold to the microphone. Well, Mark Gold took 10 minutes to walk twice the length of this room with his mother and father either side of him. Every step that he took, you could see the determination and the pain in his face as he took them steps. Mm. And I was with friends of mine, Dave Lovell, Paul Norton, Christian Brady. We were watching this, you know, three Xboxes, friends of mine, that we travelled down from Birmingham to watch this event. And every boxer in that room was willing this man to take them steps. And as he was taking them steps, Michael Watson said the words, warrior. And I, I was like, don't cry, Joe. No. Don't cry. <laughs> I was fighting back them tears. Mm. Every man and woman in that room was fighting back the tears mm. because if one person in that room had a cried, there'd have been a flood. <laughs> right? But Set Mark Gold made it to the microphone and Mark Gold's mother took the microphone mm. and she said, Michael, Michael Watson, she said, I just want to thank you from the bottom of oh. my heart. She said, because my, my boy sustained the same injuries that you sustained and they told him he would never walk again. The same as they told you, you, you would never walk again. Mm. He said, but you walked and you've inspired my boy to walk and you're able to talk. And in time, my boy will be able to talk. And I told Michael this many times, he's my friend. I said, you've inspired so many people around the world. You've touched mm. so many people without physically touching them. You've reached out and given them hope, <laughs> you know, and just well, an amazing human being, yeah. you know. And there is certain people in life that are like that, you know, and... Boxing was privileged to have Muhammad Ali and privileged to have Michael Watson, mm. you know. But with Mike Tyson, he's the same. Mike Tyson is a man that has come from from such humble beginnings and aspired. Yes, he's made mistakes. As it says in the Bible, that he has done no evil, cast the first stone. We've all made the mistakes in life, you know. And Mike has made mistakes. He's, he's not a machine. He's not conditioned not to make mistakes. And... He has achieved and inspired so many people as well because he's come from such humble beginnings. When he used to speak to my mum on the phone, getting back to this, I'm just going to tell you this story. My mum used to say, well, Mike, thank you for looking after my son. He was battering me to a pulp. And for 22 years, she spoke to him on the phone and she'd never met him. And this particular day, Mike said to me, how's your mother doing, Joe? I said, she's not so good, Mike. I said, she's had a lump removed from her throat. She's had several stitches put into her neck. Worried about it being cancer because she's a heavy smoker. My uncle Brian, my mum's brother, died of cancer, God rest him. And I said, we are worried. He said, let's go and visit your mum, Joe. So we landed in Dublin, me, Mike, Scott Welch, the former British and Commonwealth heavyweight champion who fought for the world heavyweight title against Henry Ackham one day on the Tyson Holyfield undercard. Came close to winning the world title, Scott did. Fantastic guy. That's him in Snatch. He fights Brad Pitt in Snatch. Oh, wow. Brad Pitt knocks him out in Snatch. <laughs> and I used to joke with Scott. I said, you fought for the World Heavyweight title. You went 12 rounds for the World Heavyweight title. And Brad Pitt knocks you out. <laughs> now I'm getting knocked out every week in your films. <laughs> anyway, we've landed in Dublin. Hysteria. Crazy. Dublin was, 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 was oh my God, euphoric. Because Mike Tyson was landing in Dublin. And I, I walked through Dublin Airport, so proud, walking alongside <laughs> Mike Tyson. <laughs> and then when we drove to the housing estate where I lived on, my mum had been released from hospital. There was the uh, um, the bug, the uh, I don't know what did they call that. There was a bug in the hospital anyway that it was very bad, and 
to worry about my mum's age, so they uh, they let her release from hospital to go and stay in her sister's house. And um, we went to visit her in her sister's house. So we drove onto the estate that I'd lived on, and we went into my auntie's house, and Mike Tyson embraced my mum in his arms. This is a fragile woman. This is a man that can break bones with punches, embracing Aww. a fragile woman. And it was so lovely to see. Anyway, they spoke, like as I said, they'd been speaking on and off for 22 years. And they spoke about their birthdays. Now, my mum's birthday is the 12th of July. Mike's birthday is the 30th of June. Now, both of the same birth sign, cancer. Mm-hmm. And my mum was chatting to him. And Mike said, Mrs. Egan, he said, I remember on my 18th birthday. Now, I was with Mike when we were 17. He said, I remember on my 18th birthday. It just was 22 years previous. He said, you sent me birthday presents. He said, you sent over a shoebox with some potato chips, Irish potato crisps. He said, some money in an envelope, it would have been very little money, and some sweatshirts. It would have been second-hand sweatshirts. And my mum said to Mike, you remember that, 22 years previous? He said, Mrs Egan, he said, very few people have given me anything in my life. He said, yes, I remember that. Scott Welch got choked up. He had to leave the room. Mm. I had no control of my tears at that I broke down crying. I bet. My mum and Mike... They embraced each other, and Mike looked at me and excused my language. He said, Joe, motherfucker, you're always crying. <laughs> he made me cry so many times. But what I, what I loved about that moment in time, all right, it made me cry. But this man could have been a billionaire athlete. This man, the world was at his feet. And he remembered 22 years previous, a couple of packets of crisps, couple of pounds in an envelope and a couple of second-hand sweatshirts. I can't remember what I got 22 years ago. Can you remember what you got 22 years ago for Christ a present? No. Mike Tyson remembered that, and it meant so much to him. And that puts it all into perspective, because if you think that that little something meant so much, you know, and even with all his successes in life, he still was able to remember that. And that's the great thing about the man, you know. Mm. And still to this day, I'm very proud to say he's my friend, you know, I, I I I talk about him fondly. And as I said earlier on, yeah, I brag about being able to stay on my feet with him <laughs> and Lennox Lewis, but I've earned the right yeah. to brag. You know, I'm not big-headed, but I, I brag about that. That's such a powerful story to end it on, Joe. really appreciate you being with us today. Oh. Is there anything you'd oh, like no. to tell to the viewers? Because uh, you're so inspirational, like people around the world, perhaps watching as young people. Thank you for taking an interest in me. I appreciate, I get, um, I'm not, academic or anything like that. I'm not good with, with emails and stuff. I, I, I joked with Sean and Jen earlier on. I'm old school. <laughs> Smoke signals and pigeon post. Yeah. But I get emails. My agents that take care of a lot of things for me. You know, I get emails and compliments from all around the world. And thank you for taking an interest in my life. And listen, just just try to be the best you can be. And try to be helpful and decent to other people because we share this planet you know we're we're not we're not here for a long time we're here for the grace of god and we share this planet and we should muhammad ali once said and i love this he said i wish people could love each other as much as they loved him Mm. and i wish we did love each other the way muhammad ali's fans loved him you know Mm. because that 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 to me said it all you know because we share this planet and we should share it and be good to each other be kind to each other, look after the planet, look after the animals on the planet, they share the planet with us, and just try to be the best you can possibly be. And anyone watching this, God bless you all, and thank you for taking an interest in me. 
Huge thank you for coming on. So. Yes, thank sure, you. Yeah, thank thank you. you. On that note of love, give us a hug. Chapter 7 Paddy Finn to the Rescue. I was getting depressed, very, very depressed. Boxing had been my world, it had been everything. If I had sex with a woman, it was to give me more stamina for boxing. If I cycled a bike, it was to give me stamina for boxing. If I went walking or swimming, it was for stamina for boxing. I was totally blinkered and focused on boxing. It was my world. I just wanted a box. And when I couldn't box any more because of the coach injury and my cuts problems and depression, I didn't know what to do. I had a couple of counselling sessions, but at the time I hadn't got the money to have individual counselling, so I had group counselling, which meant I was listening to other people's problems and I was taking theirs on board as well. There were six or seven of us getting the counselling up in Belfast, and by the time they came round to me, I was really shattered by listening to all their problems, so I took them on top of mine, so that didn't really help me. I was getting more depressed. I had to deal with it on my own, no matter what my dad and my mum said, even though they are two very inspirational people in my life. I couldn't accept having lost in those circumstances. Some people, loss makes them come back better. But I thought to myself, the cuts, you know, even if you looked at me, I was going to cut. My scar tissue was that fragile and I just couldn't accept it. I was working at the time in Belfast, doing the doors for a friend called Frank McCullough. Frank McCullough could see my depression and my weight going on and he said to me he was going over to Birmingham to visit an old friend of his, a guy called Paddy Finn, who was an even older friend of mine, none other than my old hero. His dad, John Boxer Finn, had founded Dunor, the amateur club I boxed for in Dublin. Paddy was the heavyweight champion out of our club years before. Me and him were great friends. And he'd gone over to Birmingham and established himself as a businessman in the pub trade. So I went over to visit him in Birmingham with Frank McCulloch. We went to his pub in Digbeth, the Dubliner, and there was a big hug and embrace. Paddy had read about the fight. He knew about the loss and about the car crash. And he said... What happened to you after your fight? I said, I just got depressed. And he said to me that he had to retire from boxing because of a trapped disc in his back. He'd had surgery on his back and he showed me the scars on his back. When he'd had to retire, he'd found another business and he knew there was life after boxing. And that's what I couldn't accept until that moment in time. I couldn't understand that there is life after your boxing career is over. Paddy Finn said to me, there's life after boxing. Come on over, work for me in the pub and a couple of years down the road you'll have your own pub. So I went back to Ireland and I spoke to my dad about it. My dad said, Well, I leave it up to yourself. The same as myself, my dad had the greatest respect for the Finns, Paddy Finn and his dad John. And he said, You're going with fine people and he won't see you wrong. And then I decided to move over to England. Lisa in 1989, I was working the door in a nightclub called Blinker's Nightclub up at the Leopardstown Racecourse. Every time I came home from the States, I always got door work just to help me make ends meet when you come home. And I used to come backwards and forwards from America for different boxing championships and for different reasons. Anyway, I was working the door this particular night and I noticed this very attractive young woman in the nightclub. She was with her friend, who turned out to be Margaret. And when the rose sellers came into the club... I actually sent over a rose to her. I said, just say it's from a man who would like to take her out. Anyway, 
We'd had eye contact through the night, so the ice was broken with the rose. I got chatting to her. I asked her if I could drive her and her friend home. They said yeah, they were living in Ballantyre, and it was only 10 or 15 minutes drive. So after the club had closed, I dropped her and her friend home. I dropped Margaret off first. Lisa and I pulled up and we just chatted and chatted for hours. I talked about America and the boxing and it turned out that I knew her cousin John who was a doorman in the nightclub called Marnie's up the road and we just seemed to hit it off. She was a lot younger than me. She was only 17 at the time and I was in my early 20s. So I thought I'd go and check with her mum and dad if it was all right if I could take her out. Anyway, she was doing modelling at the time and she invited me to one of the modelling shows to go and watch her on the catwalk. So I said I'd love to go along. And I met her mum and dad that night when I watched her doing her modelling. She told her mum and dad that she'd met this particular doorman. At the time I was driving a nice car. I had a really nice car, a BMW, which is a prestigious car. And when I met her mum, her mum said to me, You know, you're a nice guy. Surprised like, because she said the first thing Lisa had said to her was, I've met a guy that's doing the door in the nightclub, wait till you see his car. And the writing should have been on the wall then. We started courting and we courted for a number of years, then we got engaged. When I started professional with Barney, I moved up to Belfast and Lisa moved up with me and we bought a house just outside Belfast in a place called Crumlin, out by the International Airport. There was more money on the doors at Belfast. Plus, I'd got a bit tired of Dublin because the scene was very drug-orientated at that time because of the rave scene and I was a bit disillusioned because the drugs had gone from being on the street to now being in the clubs. I'd had my battle with the drug dealers. She was happy to move too. I was infatuated. She's a very, very attractive woman and we had some really nice times. But because I'd had the accident, my boxing career had sort of gone down the pan. I'd made a comeback in my third fight and I lost and I got very, very depressed, and it was difficult. She was still young and wanted to go out and enjoy herself, and I didn't really want to go out. But we were still together. We were engaged. On the 30th of June, 1995, Lisa's brother was killed in an accident. I'd been courting her for a number of years, and her brother was a close friend, and the family were close friends. I had done my bit of mourning before going over to England, but she wasn't coming over to live with me because she felt that she had to stay with her family. So I accepted that. I wasn't going to force her to come with me. In September 95, I moved over to Birmingham to manage Paddy Finn's pub. I did two NVQ certificates, a BII certificate, British Institute of Innkeeping, and I became the licensee of the Dubliner. So now I've got my licensee certificate, which was great. It was a really good feather in my cap, and I was managing Paddy's pub, the Dubliner, and I was doing ever so well, and had renewed acquaintances with some of my old friends from the boxing scene in Birmingham, some of them well-known names in boxing circles, and good friends. And things were going really, really well. Lisa was still living in my house in Ireland. She was driving my car. I was still sending money home for her to pay the bills at home, but unfortunately she wouldn't come over and live with me until she felt that her family could cope without her. And I felt that her family needed her at that time more than I needed her. But at the same time, I didn't want to lose her and it's very difficult to keep a long-distance relationship going. And gradually, she was coming over every couple of weeks, then it was every month, then it was every six months. Me and you, outside. Straightener. So, I'm in Birmingham. I've done my NBQs, I've done my BII certificate, 
I'm the licensee of the pub, a very, very successful pub. I'm in a position of trust with my friend. It was great. Anyway, one particular Sunday afternoon, like any normal pub, it's very busy. It's got two big video screens, one each end of the pub. There's a match on, Gaelic match or whatever, Irish football match. So the pub is packed and it's buzzing. It got a lot of trade passing through from the coach station. This group of about 15 guys had come in. They turned out to be a Midlands kickboxing team that had been on tour up and down the country and they'd come back to Birmingham. So they come into the pub and they're on a high from their kickboxing matches. Anyway, they'd spread out around the pub because there wasn't much room for 15 of them to stand in one group. Four were stood at the bar and they were a little bit boisterous because they were getting the drink quicker than the rest were because they were standing at the bar. So they were downing it pretty quick. And the more they downed, the more boisterous they got. So I'm watching. I thought to myself, this is all I need. There's at least 15 of them, trained fighters, kickboxers. Paddy Finn's out somewhere having a meal or whatever. I thought, I don't need this. I've just landed on my feet again. NVQs, my licence, everything's gone well. So I thought, I don't need them to start a row, doing their kung fu, kickboxing moves. So I walk over and I said to the one guy standing there with his muscles and his big neck and all, this is a lover's pub, not a fighter's pub. Calm down, lads. He gave me a sort of look of contempt, but he said nothing. So I sat more or less opposite them. Rather than walk away, I sat opposite them. Not staring at them, but close enough if they started messing about again, I could get at them quick. At that stage, two girls would come off another coach came into the pub. Tina Brennan and her friend, just back from Blackpool or Brighton. Hey Joe, they said, and they sat down beside me. I thought, I don't need this. I'm trying to watch these four, and the two girls are trying to chat to me. The two girls are attractive girls, and at that moment, one of the four guys from the bar comes over and he says, Move up there, let me sit in beside you. I said, No, you stay in your own company. And he just looked at me, the same contempt as earlier. He said, I'm going to blow you away. Now, I didn't come over from Ireland to be listening to this from some upstart. I thought to myself, No, I'm not having this. So I stood up and I put my arm around him. You're leaving now. I don't have to listen to this. You're leaving. And as I put my arm around him to usher him out, he's done some sort of kung fu move, turned and blocked my hand. So, as he's done that, I come up with the uppercut. It was a peach. Bang. Out with the count. His three friends at the bar. Four punches. Four knockouts. Bang, 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 bang. And the four of them hit the deck. And I looked up, because don't forget, there's at least another ten of his friends in. So I look at them, and they're looking at me. I didn't push the issue. I didn't attack them. A couple of bar staff helped me carry the unconscious lads outside, and it's like a Clint Eastwood movie. They're lined up outside. Neely, Sean Jr. and Emmett were at the bar, and they said, We've never seen anything like it, Joe. I said, Ah, it's nothing. Jesus, Joe, what? No, don't be talking about that. I want to talk about boxing. That's not my scene, street fights. Paddy Finn came back and I explained to him. He was laughing. He said, well, you weren't the heavyweight champion for nothing. He's just a great character. For days it was all the talk. You want to see Joe Egan's punch? I said, don't be saying them things. I'm not over here to street fight. My boxing career's finished. How glorious short-lived. Always in my whole life, when I've been in situations like the gun battle, which I'll tell about later, 
and other times when people have tried to stab me or when I've been attacked with different weapons, I've always maintained, over my career, somebody watches over me. I believe in my heart and soul. I know my grandparents, my mum's parents and my dad's parents or somebody I've befriended over the years, I believe they watch over me. They're my guardian angels. Somebody watches over me from heaven. The following week there was a boxing team over and a soccer team over from Ireland because Paddy Finn sponsors all the teams and they'd had their match on the Friday night at the boxing and their match on Saturday at the soccer. So they're going home to Ireland on the Sunday evening and they're in having their breakfast Sunday morning. So I'm leaving them to have their breakfast and having a chat and I've gone out for the newspapers with my dog, Sheba, a boxer. Naturally, I had her 14 years before she had to be put to sleep. As I'm walking down at the front of the bus station, there's a bus shelter and there's a young lad who's got an old man pinned to the ground. There's another lad standing there and a girl and he's screaming, Ballymun, which is a part of Dublin. So I'm looking at this old man. You could see the fear in his face. The young man's only about six stone, dripping wet. So I pick him up and I grab him and I pin him to the bus shelter and I grab his friends. I said, hold him. His friend wasn't much bigger, another six stoner. So he's got him now. The old man was up and his legs were going. He's gone. The kid I got pinned against the bus shelter is still screaming, Ballymun, Ballymun. I said, shut up, I'm from Dublin as well. Don't shame us any more than you already have. There were people outside the news agents where I was going to. There was the Roscommon pub across the road. That's since become the Kerryman. Liam and Kevin Fitzgerald had it at the time. Liam O'Connor has it now. And they're just looking on. Liam and Kevin, I said. You're watching in broad daylight an old man being mugged and beaten up. And they were embarrassed. And the shopkeepers. I said, are you people just looking? Nobody going to help? Now I'm only over at this pub a couple of months at this stage. Anyway, I go into the news agents, get my newspapers, get my dog, and I walk back up to the Dubliner. As I walked by on the way back up, the other lads got this young hooligan pinned to the ground again and the girls helping to hold him down. These are his friends. I look and I'm shaking my head. It's broad daylight. You don't expect to see this on a Sunday morning. So I get back up to the Dubliner and I'm talking with Paddy Finn. I said, you're not going to believe this. And I just told Paddy what happened. Next of all, boom, the doors kicked open to the pub. The swinging door and the young lad jumps in. Me and you, outside, straightener. He's only about 16 or 17 years of age, about six stone. I'm looking, Paddy Finn's looking. The young boxing team and the young soccer team are looking. Well, I grabbed him really quick and I threw him out against the metal rail outside. I came back in and said, that's that. I can't believe it, the cheek of him. Next of all, boom. The bottom of the doors kicked again and the wooden door panel, which pulled regular Christie's hand carved, a beautiful harp and stuff, He's busted it right in. Christie's gone. Oh, my door, my door. So I'm looking at the door. The young thug's run out and he's jumped the metal railings, which they have outside the pub to prevent you staggering out onto the main road. He's jumped that and he's standing in the middle of the road. Me and you, me and you. So I'm going out the door, but Paddy grabbed me. Joe, don't go out. The cameras are all over the street. So I'm going. You come in. He's shouting, come out. And he's in the middle of this road cars are dodging him. You wouldn't see it in a movie. I'm saying, come in, come in. Tommy McGough, who's come to visit me, is laughing. He's come down from Manchester to see the boxing team on Friday night and the soccer team. He's been friends with me a long time and we've since went into business.
He runs to the other door, out into the middle of the road, over the far side of the road, comes up behind the young tug and pushes him into the metal railings. No sooner has he pushed him into the metal railings than I jump out, grab him and hoist him over the fence. Now he's gone from, come out, I'm going to kill you, to, Jesus, please don't hurt me. And I walk him into the Dubliner and show him the door he's just busted. I'm holding him like a suitcase and hitting his head against it. Bang. See, look, will you see what you've done? Bang. Christy's going, don't damage it any more, Joe. Don't damage it any more. See what you've done? Bang. See what you've done? Bang. Jesus, please don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Hurt you? I've lifted him up. I'm going to half kill you. And I walk through the pub, holding him past the young soccer team and the young boxing team who are just gaping. Paddy's gone to me. Jesus, Joe, look what the damage he's done. I go out the back by the Dubliner in the office with the hooligan. I'm now going to punish him. Tommy's behind me with Paddy. Now, don't forget the week before. Four shots, bang on target, four major knockouts. Now I've got this young 16-year-old, six stone dripping wet, at my mercy. And Paddy goes, Ah, Jesus, Joe, you'll kill him. Kill him? I'm going to flatten him. So I've thrown the shot, he's moved his head, and I've missed and smashed my knuckles against the wall. He's going, Jesus! I'm going, Oh my God, my hand! He's crawling along the floor going, Don't hurt me any more. I've swung a kick and I slip. Down I go dislocate my shoulder and split my head open. So I'm now writhing on the floor. Oh! Paddy Finn and Tommy are keeled over laughing. I've swung a kick, I've swung the punch and neither landed. My hand smashed, the blood's pumping out of my hand, my head split and my shoulder's dislocated. I'm going, oh Paddy! Paddy's rocking with the laughing. He gives the youngster a boot in the arse. He helps me up. I groan, no, no, my shoulder, my shoulder. I know it's dislocated. So anyway, Paddy's carried this young lad out. Now I've come out, right? I'm dripping blood because the blood's coming down my head, all through my clothes. The blood's all down my trousers from my hand. The young boxing team and the young soccer team were staring in disbelief as I'm in bits, not a mark on the young thug. So I've gone to the hospital. They put my shoulder back in and they stitch my head up and they patch my hand up. So I come back and I'm sitting with Dublin Ronnie and Paddy's dad, Boxer. My dog sitting beside me and I swear to God I look like I've been through the wars and I'm having a bowl of soup. I'm in pure agony. Whatever bone I'd hit on the back of my head, every time I opened my jaw, it was hurting me so I couldn't even open my mouth to sup the soup. Next, this girl comes in and says, Can I talk to you? What do you want? Thanks very much for not hurting my boyfriend. Hurt him? I tried to half kill him. I couldn't land a punch on him. I said, All right, thanks, no problem. So away she went anyway. That night I couldn't sleep because I couldn't lie on my shoulder. I couldn't put my head on the pillow. So the next morning, Monday morning, the bus station is packed, people going to work and whatever. So I'm up, I haven't slept, and I'm in a bad way. And I walk out of the pub to go down to get the newspapers. And I'm in agony because I've hurt my back as well when I fell down. So I'm walking stiff with the pain. There was a hamburger stand at the front of the Dubliner, with people eating hamburgers and sandwiches before they go on the bus. The young lad sitting on the wall out the front. He jumps off the wall. I'm sorry about what I did to you. I said, get back, please. I'm sorry, I didn't mean yesterday. Get back. There's people watching, this young kid, me a big man. I go, no, don't, please. 
I'm sorry I didn't mean for that. I'm sorry I didn't mean you to get hurt. Please, don't come near me. Go back. It was like Inspector Clouseau with Cato. I've had enough. Go away. Forget about it. I'm sorry I didn't mean for you to get hurt, he said. I hadn't eaten for a week. I'm sorry I was drunk on cider. What? We hadn't eaten for a week. I was shocked now. I said, you haven't eaten for a week? No, he said. We've come over from Ireland, me and my girlfriend and my friend. We haven't eaten for a week. And he said, the cider hit us harder on an empty stomach. I don't do them things, but it was the only way to get money. I said, come in. So, as I've walked back into the Dubliner with the young kid, Paddy Finn's there and Paddy goes, he's not back for round two, is he? Paddy, I said, I've enough after round one. Paddy, the boy hasn't eaten for a week, or his friend or his girlfriend. Paddy says, put them up some food there. Anyway, they had a feed. Paddy organised for them to go and meet people that he's helped in the Irish community and stuff like that. They're in their twenties now, and one of the young lads now is working, parking the cars at the auctions, and the other lad does security at building sites. When I got my own pub, the Lindhurst, the two boys got me the rocking chair. You're retired now, they said. You've made it. Sit back in the rocking chair. They're good lads. Nice youngsters. So I said, all right. So I give the rocking chair to my dad. I'm not ready to retire yet. When I was in prison, one of the lads called to see Ruth one day up in the Mosley Arms. And they're still thin and fragile looking, about 25 or 26 now, but they're just naturally thin. And he says, any trouble in your pub, I'll be up. Just give me a call. And Ruth looked at him. She says, OK, thanks very much. As she said when she visited me, there's not a good row in him. And then I took an interest in the two boys and with Paddy Finn's help, got them jobs and got them set up in a place. Because I've experienced hunger over the years, times have been hard, and I've had people say to me, Joe, I remember when you had nothing. I say, you don't remember it as well as I remember it. And when you hear a boy 16 saying to you, I haven't eaten in a week, because he just can't afford to eat, I tell you what, it brings it home to you pretty quick how life really is. That particular day, that person was watching over me and would not let me land a punch on him. If I'd landed a punch on him, I might have killed him. No matter what punch I threw, I couldn't land. So they were watching over me that day because they wouldn't let me land the punch. Showdown at the Lindhurst Corral After 18 months, two years, I got a great opportunity to have my own pub. A good pub had come up in the Aston Villa area and with my business partner, Tommy McGough, who was from Belfast, we took over the pub called the Lindhurst in Erdington. It was a pub that was doing £1,000 a week and we took that pub to £16,000 a week in a matter of months. We had two boxing tournaments there and we had a forum with the stars. We had Richard Woodhall, the world super middleweight champion, Bunny Johnson, the first black British heavyweight champion, Rob Norton, the world cruiserweight champion and Ernie Shavers, who was the hardest puncher ever of all time. They all did forums in the pub. We had the Lions Club, which is the most charitable organisation in the world, base themselves there. We had the number one ladies darts team in the Midlands and we had a decent men's darts team. We built the community pub and it was going from strength to strength. Then in July 98, almost a year after we first traded, the racketeers, the gangsters, decided the pub needed protection. There was no warning. They'd burned down two of Paddy Finn's pubs over the years They'd killed, they'd maimed and they'd butchered. 
they'd run a particular section of Birmingham for 15 years. They're called the Darcy family. Some are connected with the Aston Villa football hooligans, the Combat 18, all racially motivated. The Combat 18 is a splinter group of the National Front. Combat 18 stands for Combat 128, which is the first letters of the alphabet, A and the eighth letter H. It actually stands for Combat Adolf Hitler. So these are a recognised terrorist organisation. They have a lot to do with football hooliganism. They're sort of scum, for want of another word. They associate themselves with all sorts of violence because they trade on violence, fear and intimidation. So anything that has an element of violence, they want to be associated with it. It was a protection racket. They wanted £500 a week to not wreck our pub. But also they wanted to prove that they were the big shots because this was an Irish-owned pub a pub frequented by ethnic communities from Asian, Chinese, black. People make the mistake thinking that the National Front and the Combat 18 just hate black people. They hate Asians, they hate blacks, they hate Chinese, they hate Irish. They're just a hateful organisation. I wasn't knowledgeable enough at the time about racism because we didn't experience racism at home in Ireland and I wasn't experienced in what racism was all about. Even though I knew about it, I didn't know enough about it and my friends at the time warned me. They said, Joe, that's a racist area. But I thought that racism was just against blacks. I didn't realise that the racism was against Irish as well. And when I took over this pub, it was against a couple of black friends' advice. But I felt the same as I felt when I was boxing. I was a world beater. There was nothing could stop me. If I was determined to do something and I put my heart into it, me and Tommy could make a go of this pub. On Sunday the 19th of July 1998, they sent a guy called Jack Welch to my pub. In the Irish community, Sunday was family day. We had to be home on a Sunday. Every other day we could pop in and have our dinners at different times, but on a Sunday we all had to be around the table. And it's always been a family day. And it's still to this day in Irish communities. I don't know what it's like in the Jamaican community, but I think it must be similar. So I encouraged family day in my pub. It used to be crammed full of children and Danny Brown did the door on the Sunday with GT not because of trouble but because the car park was big the kids used to go out to the car park and we were worried about taxis pulling in too fast. Also, there was that many boxers who used to use the pub ex-boxers and current boxers we never had trouble. It was the safest pub in England. I used to joke to the bar staff whatever you do don't ring that bell for last orders they'll all leap off their stools and start boxing. So I'm not boasting but, in my eyes, it was the safest pub in England because of the genuine guys that were drinking in the pub. Anyway, on the 19th of July 1998, this Jack Welch's came in saying that he wanted to put his doorman on the pub. So I said, no, we don't need any doorman. The pub's running smooth. We don't need doorman. He said, if you don't put our doorman on the pub, you'll have a lot of trouble with the Darcys. And he said he wanted to put his men on the door at £500 a week. Now I knew there were a few faces in the bar and they weren't regular faces. I didn't know if they were armed. I didn't know what they were. I said, are you threatening me? And I've raised my voice. My two friends, John McBean and Warren Wigan, both tough guys were playing pool. They stopped. John McBean comes over. He knows I can't risk losing my licence. I can't afford to be arrested. So he nudges me out of the way. He says, is this a black thing? John knew that these guys were racist. Warren's black and John McBean's black. A lot of black people used my pub at the time. 
I did a lot of black funerals and we had a lot of black weddings. The Irish have always had a good rapport with black people from the 60s. John's a dangerous man, a tough, hard man, ex-professional boxer, well-respected man. Warren's beside him, another well-respected man in the Birmingham community. Jack Welch was stopped for words, now because he suddenly realised that I wasn't on my own. He said, No, no, you don't understand. John McBean said a couple of other things to him, then said, It's best you leave. So he's walking out of the bar to the foyer of the pub, and Warren and John are following him out, and I'm looking at these others sitting around, because John and Warren wouldn't know these others sitting around weren't regulars. So away goes Jack Welch, and shortly afterwards, five or six other people that were sitting scattered about left as well. John and Warren asked me what it was all about. I told them. Later that day, John and Warren phoned a couple of the lads to come up and have a late drink. They were to go and meet them somewhere else, but they phoned them to say that they were staying. I said, No, no, don't mess up your day. They said, We'll have a drink in the pub late tonight. Next, my business partner Tommy comes back to the pub. I'm sitting at the bar in the lounge at closing time. The day's gone without a hitch, other than the words with Jack Welch. At closing time, I get a phone call saying, You're still open? I said, Well, we're not still open, but there's a few in the pub having a drink. I thought it was one of my regulars that were going to come down and have a late drink. People phone me all the time. Are we having a stop back? The law says you're allowed to have people in the pub as long as you're not taking money. So even if I was talking to a policeman, I wasn't doing anything illegal. So I said, Who am I speaking to? The phone hung up. So now whoever's on the phone knows that we're still here but they think it's just me and Tommy. Suddenly, there's a gang of 10 or 15 hoodlums coming across my car park. Right, so I hear a bit of a commotion out in my car park. So I jump up and there's six or eight lads in my lounge having a bit of a laugh and a bit of fun. So I walk out. At this stage, John and Warren take over and they step outside the door. And these lads were coming across my car park with scarves covering their faces. John and Warren step out and they see John and Warren and then they know now that I'm not on my own. So suddenly, they've stopped on their tracks. What's going on, Warren? They know who Warren is, and Warren and John close my door and have a few words with them. At this stage, a police car pulls in and the crowd all disperse. A police sergeant gets out. What's going on? I said, to be truthful, I'm not 100% sure. I explained to him what happened earlier on in the day. I said, I don't know what this was all about because at this stage I didn't see any face that I knew from earlier on. I didn't know at this stage what this was all about. So I liaised with the police through the week, because there's pretty much a tense atmosphere all week. I was a businessman and licensee now. I'd left all that in Ireland, doing the doors, the battles and everything else, to run a good pub. I'm not a vigilante. I'm a businessman, right? Let the police handle it. The sergeant was from the local police, a nice guy, He was keeping up to speed on what was going on and they were doing their investigations. I told him all about the protection demand. There was no trouble from the 19th of July to the following Sunday, 26th of July, when I got a phone call to say that these gangs are gathering in the Yenton and the Norton pubs. Tommy, my business partner, ex-French Foreign Legion, Medal of Honour winner, he won the Croix de Guerre, is a Belfast man and he's grown up in war because the Northern Ireland situation was a war. He was an ex-martial arts expert, ex-boxing champion, a proper hard man, conditioned hard, trained hard, still to this day, in his forties now, super fit, super strong. 
he was pensioned off from the French Foreign Legion because he got malaria. He said to me, let's bring it to them. If they want trouble, let's bring it to them. I said, Tommy, I'm a businessman. I'd not gone soft, but my boxing career was over for me. This was my second career. I got business opportunities. I didn't want this one to be over for me too. We're running a good pub. We're making good money. We're making great money. So let the police take care of it. So Tommy says, OK. So I phoned the police sergeant and told him, I've had a phone call these gangs are gathering in the Enton and the Norton. They're going to attack my pub. He said, I'm on my way to you. The Enton is up the road, 400 yards from my pub. The man that ran the pub was a friend of mine, Mickey King. Jake Welch was running the doors there and in a number of pubs in the area as part of the protection and the racketeering. Lo and behold, the sergeant says, I'm on my way to you. I'm going to radio the station, get them to send men to these pubs to physically walk through the pub to disperse any gangs that are gathering. These are the sergeant's words to me. As he's on his way to me, he got a radio call and they sent him to a Mickey Mouse alarm call in the Bromford. Mine was a genuine distress call. It turns out that the armed response unit was ready from two o'clock that day. They knew there was men coming to my pub with guns. But what did they care? It's a group of black men and a group of paddies. They're for slaughter by the racist thugs. On that particular day, 26th of July 1998, we had a communion going on in the function room. Father Thomas Malloy, who was the priest that was attached to the Abbey Church, who was on the same stretch of road as the Lindhurst, used to bring us up business to the pub. He encouraged parishioners in his chapel to bring their business to the pub. Communions, weddings, funerals. He was a Belfast priest, and he had done Tommy's communion 30 years before in Northern Ireland, so he had a double reason to bring us business, not because the church was next to the pub, but also because the man that owned the pub was a family friend. That particular day's communion had been booked months in advance. Now we were aware something was going to happen on the day, and I actually encouraged the family to cancel, but they said if we were going to make a stand, they were going to make a stand by having their function at the pub. The community spirit was that strong. In the pub that day, there were families, young children, old men, old women, family pub, packed to the rafters. I also had a few friends inside, ex-boxers. These men were about to put their life on the line for me. When the gangs eventually got onto my car park, there were 37 of them, armed with a handgun, a shotgun, hatchets and machetes. I'm in the office making my second call to the police. The pub has 16 security cameras and the monitor can show pictures from all 16 or 8 or 4 or only 1. It's showing the four main ones, the car park, the inside foyer, the lounge and the bar. I can see the armed gang gathering in the car park around the area of the cabbie rank. They're starting to throw glasses. Many of them have masks and scarves around their faces and various weapons, clubs, sticks, machetes, baseball bats. With his army swarming behind him, Jake Welch approaches the double front doors, one of which is open. He takes out a silver thirty-two caliber handgun and starts firing rapidly at the doors. He's wearing no mask or gloves. After three shots, the gun jams. He makes several attempts to fire it, then throws it down to the ground. People are panicking and screaming and ducking. I'm coming out of the office inside and heading towards the front foyer. Unknown to me, one of his men has now handed Jake Welch an even deadlier weapon. Jake Welch, no mask, stepped up to the open doorway, up to my door with a shotgun. As I rounded the corner from the office, I saw him entering the bar directly in front of me, with the shotgun levelled. I stepped back immediately behind the wall, 
pressed back against it and crossed myself. I'm not ashamed to say I was afraid. As he stepped into the bar, a good friend of mine, Steve Dalton, an ex-boxer, ran out from the bar screaming, Ah! Jake Welch looked shocked. The last thing you expect any man to do is run against a gun. He pointed the shotgun half down and let rip the first shot. Some of the pellets hit the ground and some of them came up and caught this guy in the legs and the arms. He didn't take the full force of the shotgun, but the ricochets are catching him. At this stage, Jake Welch is panicked because, whether his intentions were to wound or whatever, his intentions weren't to do somebody else. His intentions were to do me. At the time, I didn't realise this, but I know it now. Remember, I phoned the police who are well aware that this attack is happening. In court later, it was established there were four phone calls that I made begging for help. As I am looking at my wounded friend, an old man, a guy called Jim O'Brien, steps out with his hands up. Jim's from Limerick. A good customer, and I'd built up a friendship with him. He also lived next door to the Darcy family all their lives. His children had played with their kids, grown up with them. His daughter was living in one of the Darcy apartments. John Darcy's girlfriend was sharing an apartment with Jim's daughter. So Jim O'Brien steps out with his hands up. Please, I can stop this. I know these boys. At this point, I step out from behind the wall to pull the old man in behind the wall. Jake Welch raises the shotgun now for the second shot. I've looked into many men's eyes over the years from boxing and from rows. I've looked into their eyes, but I've never looked into a man's eyes with pure evil. I mean pure evil like you could not imagine. And he let rip with the second shot from the shotgun. He blasted that old man to get to me. I was standing behind the old man and he didn't care. This is an old man who he knew. He blasted the old man in the hip, blew the hip clean out of him. He fell into my arms. Some of the shotgun pellets hit around my arms and a shotgun pellet punctured my nose, a few all over my body. So I've got the old man now in my arms and he's splattered all over my foyer, bits of flesh and whatever else. He's took a bad blast. The moment the second shell from the shotgun was gone, the lads that were in the bar and the lounge ran out. I put the old man down to be attended to in my lounge by my bar staff and a couple of my customers. And I go outside and there's a scene in my car park right across as far as the eye can see. There's a battle going on. There's a guy cornered and he turns around with his hatchet and he goes, Come on! And one of them sticks the hatchet into his chest. He drops his weapon and he's shaking now. So he's grabbed by the hair, he's pulled down and this guy's trying to chop his head off. And he's going to his face saying, Stay still! He's getting chopped to bits. Another guy with a bayonet standing beside this person saying, Jeez, you're going to kill him. This person turns to this other guy. Get another one. This guy that was chopped to bits underneath the tree in the car park had to be brought back to life in my car park. His life was saved in hospital. There was a load of the other gang too badly wounded. George Darcy, Fat Darcy, was trying to climb a wall and he was pulling his friends down as he was trying to climb the wall. These are guys that have stood beside him. He was grabbed by the hair and his throat was cut. Across the road, there were a couple of guys running. Another couple of lads cornered this guy, Robert Darcy, who was an animal. He runs into a dead-end lane and turns. A couple of guys that are chasing him have no weapons. He's got the machetes. One decks him with a punch. As he hits the deck, a couple of the lads with the weapons jump on top of him and they slice the living daylights out of him. It was a bad, bad scene. There was bits of limbs, bodies everywhere. On a Sunday afternoon, there was a 25-minute pitched battle. The newspaper said it made Braveheart look like a Walt Disney movie. I made my third call to the police for help. 
the ambulances and the police eventually arrived after a 25-minute pitched battle, 55 minutes in all after the first distress call. They'd had an armed response unit ready from two o'clock that day. They knew there was men coming to my pub with guns and the police station's not 400 yards from the pub. You could walk at 50 times in 55 minutes. Some of the lads that stood in the fend of the pub with me got showered, freshened up and were gone before the police arrived. Because he's my doorman, Danny stayed watching the pub while I had to go to hospital with the old man that's wounded pretty bad and for my own wounds as well. We got to the hospital in the ambulance. There was a number of ambulances taking bits and bodies away. As we pull into the hospital, one of the ambulance drivers that had got there first comes out and he says to my ambulance driver, Hey, you're not going to believe this. We've got all the gangs from the Lindhurst. They're all here at the hospital. What's this about gangs, I say. We're not gangs. I'm the landlord of the pub. We were attacked by a gang. I've got an old man who's shot pretty bad. Is there a police presence in the hospital, as I'm on my own? He goes, yeah, yeah. We go into the hospital. The old man's taken in on a stretcher, and he's being attended to pretty well sharpish. I'm sitting there, and it's so surreal. A couple of weeks before, I'm living the life of a millionaire, and now my bubble's burst. I'm feeling sorry for myself. I'm wounded. As I'm sitting there, two guys walk by me. One of them a guy called Terry French, an ex-semi-professional soccer player who used to play for the Sunday League, puts his fingers to my head in the shape of a gun, as if he's shooting me in the head. This is the other gang. His brother had been chopped up pretty bad. This is in the casualty unit at the hospital, so I stand up and knock him and his friend out. Spark the two of them. Bang, bang. They hit the deck. I pick up the stool and I go straight at the other people in casualty. They're all bandaged up and they're all screaming and shouting. It's nothing to do with us. It's nothing to do with us. Because now the panic's taken over again. I'm screaming and shouting because they've walked me into a trap. They walked me into all these families of the people that had been chopped up by some of the people that protected me and the families in my pub. The police begin to arrive. I leave Jim O'Brien to be attended to and looked after and leave the hospital pretty sharpish. The next day I attended another hospital and got myself patched up. There's a shotgun pellet in my nose. They said they would have to cut it right open to take it out. I said, leave it in. Just take the rest of the pellets out of me. The shotgun pellet's still in my nose. I have to be careful when I sneeze. I might shoot somebody. Over a period of ten days, there were all sorts of investigations going on and they closed my pub. Some say it was the police using me as a scapegoat for their negligence and I wouldn't disagree with them. They tried to revoke my licence. I was charged with attempted murder. The police station that was handling my business was Queen's Road Police Station. Now Erdington was the district where my pub was, but Erdington was a part-time police station and it only opened for a certain amount of hours a day. After a certain time, Queen's Road Police Station took over. It was common knowledge in the Midlands and it was common knowledge in the Irish community that there was an element of racism within the Queen's Road Police Station. Not them all. I don't knock all police officers. If you don't have police, you've anarchy. My brother-in-law's a cop. So you have to have a police force. You have to have a ruling body. There has to be people to enforce law and order. Danny was arrested too. He had stayed on the scene because he was my doorman and my friend to watch my money, to watch my premises and Tommy's premises and he was Tommy's friend as well. Eventually, they dropped the charges against Danny. They agreed to let the pub open again on the condition that it was made to be like Fort Knox with crash barriers, shutters... The chief inspector at the time said that the gang's normal procedure was to petrol bomb because they had burned down a number of pubs 
He said the only way he'd let the pub stay open was to fortify it. So I had to have no letterbox, install a steel front door, cameras and crash barriers. Well, the trade went down, but we built it back up again because the way we looked at it was that if these animals didn't get in here, they'd get into other pubs. We went back down to four and a half grand from 16 and I was feeling really bad. But my accountant and my friend, Ken Pritchard, said to me, look at it this way, the first time round when you hit four and a half grand from taking over from a thousand, how did you feel? I felt great. Look, don't feel too bad. At least we didn't go back to square one. We went from 16 down to four and a half instead of 16 down to a thousand. But the pub needed six grand a week to break even so we were struggling for a number of weeks until we built it back up. The VAT was due and they gave us a deal. I was the only person in the pub trade known to get a deal out of the VAT. Normally the VAT look at your cash business. You've had your money, we want ours. But they gave me a helping hand because I said to them, Look, these scumbags that attacked me couldn't beat me. Don't you finish the job for them. Don't put me to the wall and put us out of business. If you want to put the nails into the coffin, you close me. If you want to make them successful and make them glorified more than they already are, you finish the job for them. They gave me a deal, letting me pay off the VAT due over a period of months, so we were able to use money saved up for the VAT to keep the wages going, to keep on a front that everything was back to normal. And over a period of weeks, that is exactly what we were able to achieve. The staff were sound. The staff stood by us. After what they'd experienced, they were brilliant. They stood by me and did me proud and it was nice. I used to take them out for Christmas meals, had a good working relationship and a friendship with some of them. But the most important thing was the customers. There's no point in having any staff if there were no customers. And people that hadn't frequented the pub came and supported me. People that had been seeing this going on for years before travelled from all over the Midlands to come to my pub to show solidarity, to show support. There was no way the gang were coming back. They'd come to dictate and they'd got slaughtered. I was fortunate that they were friends with me. There was no other reason to be at the pub. There was men stood beside me in that pub and women. There's women stood with me as well that day. There's women that attended wounded and there was women helping me. So men and women stood together. United we stand, divided we fall. And that particular day, if me and Tommy had been there on our own, we'd have been dead. I wouldn't be here sitting telling the story now. Both me and Tommy would be dead. They would have killed us because I wouldn't have bowed to them and Tommy wouldn't have bowed to them, so we would have stood our ground. We'd have taken a few of them with us, but what good is that? We had video cameras in the pub, but Tommy was getting golf lessons and he was using the bloody videotapes to have his golf lessons recorded, so we weren't recording. That's the only day we didn't record. The police eventually tried to get the court to try to revoke my licence for attempted murder and everything else, but I beat them in court. The police sergeant apologised. I'm sorry, Joe, he said. I'm sorry. I summonsed him. I summonsed the head of the armed response unit who admitted in court that they were ready, that they were aware that there was gangs coming with guns. I proved that I phoned the police before, during and after, and the chief superintendent still tried to close me. Whatever dislike he took to me, I don't know. I don't understand why. He had no reason to hate me. He tried to blame me for his negligence. The headlines in the newspapers were Justice Prevails. I beat them in court, but I was warned by a high-ranked retiring police officer. Listen, the police will be out to get you. You've embarrassed the police force. 
You do the job that they couldn't do. My advice is carry a dictaphone with you everywhere you go. Every time a police officer approaches you, even if it's coming to pat you on the back saying a job well done, switch it on. For about six weeks, I carried a dictaphone with me, in my car, in my pocket. I just got mad paranoia. And it's not me. I'd never been in trouble before. My grandfather was a retired police sergeant in Ireland. My sister's married to a police officer in New York. With my brother, I was four and a half years in the part-time army at home, which was a second for the military police. A lot of lads I was with went on to join the Irish police force. I've never been any threat to the police. I'm not a thug. I'm not a gangster. At the end of the day, I didn't feel that I had to conduct my life like that. It was stupid. So I put the dictaphone away. Joe, it's my new car. After the West Midlands police let me down in the attack on the pub, they charged me with attempted murder and tried to close my pub and everything else. They took a lot of my personal belongings when they raided the pub, including photographs, which were of sentimental value. When I was arrested, they kept the clothes that I was arrested in. They were covered in blood, my own blood, because of the gunshot wound. Afterwards, when they eventually dropped the charges, I got a lot of these photographs back and I wanted to get my personal belongings back. Eventually, I got a call from the police to come at 3pm the following day to collect my stuff. I wasn't in any fit condition to drive. I was on crutches and actually I couldn't even sit down properly. Tommy was away, so I got a guy who was using the pub that just happened to come up that day to show his new car. Fair play to him, he's a nice guy. He said he'd give me a lift. Three o'clock, I'm in the foyer of Queen's Road Police Station on crutches. As I'm standing in the foyer, there's three other guys there. I'm looking at their faces, and you know the way you recognise them, but you don't recognise them? They weren't looking directly at me, they were looking down. Most of the guys that had attacked me on the day were wearing balaclavas and scarves around their faces, so all I'd seen were their eyes. But it was enough. I know it's them. The door opens, and I'm ushered into this particular office. There's two plainclothes and a uniformed officer there, and they give me one sock, one shoe, and a shirt. So I say, I come down to collect all my personal belongings. You're giving me one shoe, one sock, and a shirt? Where's all my photographs? The plainclothes guy leans into my face. You hardly want your hatchets back, do you? I said, they weren't my hatchets. I don't know what you're talking about. They're not mine. At that stage, the door opens. The uniformed police officer from outside leans in. He said, we'd better keep Joe in here. We've got two of the Darcys and a Murphy. Three of the bastards that attacked me in the pub, they were the three guys that were standing in the foyer. Not only had the police told me to come here at three o'clock, They'd also got the scumbags that had attacked me in the foyer of the police station. At that stage, I threw the crutches down. I said, let me out. And I'm trying to get out past the two uniformed coppers that were standing in the room now, one at the door, one beside the door. I've got the two plainclothes officers trying to stop me. I'm trying to get at these three animals who they're ushering into the room at the same time as ushering me out. I'd just had surgery, so I wasn't in a fighting state, but there's no way I was going to leave. I wanted these guys. The police got me out. No sweat. A child could have pushed me out. I was so weak. So I'm outside the door now as the three animals are rushed past. I'm still trying to get eye contact. I just want to look at one of them. I just want to look into their eyes. I wanted to put the fear into them that they put into me on the day of that attack. They wouldn't look at me. Now I'm outside the room. They're inside, closing the door. I don't know where the strength came from 
I got one sudden burst of strength and I hit the door of my shoulder. The pain, because I was full of stitches from surgery, went right through my body, but I'm back in the little room. I say, did I leave anything in here? I was so weakened that the woman police officer ushered me out again. My crutches were handed to me. Outside the police station, I limp over to the guy that has given me the lift and get into the car. Right, I said. There's three of them in there, two of the Darcy's and a Morphy. When they come out, ram them. What? When they walk out of that police station, you ram them, stick them to the wall, splatter them all over that wall. Oh, Jesus, Joe, what, what are you on about? Do what I say. It's my new car, I said. Shut your mouth. I'll buy the car off you. I will pay you for the car. Please smash them against the wall. Stick them to the wall. Let them be scraped off that wall. Jesus, Joe, please. He breaks down and starts crying in the car. He was crying about his new car. I can't drive and I'm begging him. I'd pay him for the car. Give him the money for the car. Mad isn't the word. These people had shot me. They tried to kill me. And the West Midlands priest had brought me down there thinking that I'm going to be intimidated when I'm on crutches. I'm the same man on crutches as I am walking. I don't get intimidated by that scum. But I wanted to make a point and I kept on begging him. When they walk out of that police station, stick them to the wall. Let Queen's Road Police Station be peeling them off that wall. Splatter them all over that wall. He's crying about the car. He's begging me. Please, Joe, leave it. I phoned Tommy, who was at the far end of the country. He said, Joe, relax, calm down. We'll get them in the long run. Don't be worrying about that. Calm down. The police have stayed away from the pub, left me to be attacked and to be killed. They've knowingly walked me into the hospital afterwards amongst the men who'd attacked me. Now they've got me going to the police station at the same time with the same animals. Calm down. I was in a fury. Lisa and the other man. At that particular time, because my business was suffering, my health was suffering too as a result of it all, from the stress. I'd never been in trouble like this before. To go from never being in trouble to suddenly being charged with attempted murder, you know? I took very sick. I had an abscess in my bowel that burst because of stress. They didn't detect the abscess and the poison was going through my system. I got yellow jaundice and I was very, very sick. I was hospitalised and trying to run a business and fight the police from my hospital bed. My mother came over while my business partner was trying to hold things together. Lisa came over, but she wasn't very helpful or supportive. She showed no inclination to stay and help me through this bad time. If anything, she seemed more concerned about having a second breast enhancement and she returned to Dublin. We'd been together for ten years. I was still sending money to her. I was happy with Lisa. As far as I was concerned, we were going to be together forever and I didn't think in my wildest dreams that what happened later was going to happen. She started working and she was going to college to study to be an accountant technician. This was as well as her modelling. Her friend Rachel had graduated from college as an accountant and was working for the firm that had put her through college. She'd been paid by this firm to go through college on the condition that when she left the college she worked for them. Her income wasn't anything special while she was studying, but between the two of them they could do small businesses books in their own time. As neither of them was earning much money, I bought them over £10,000 worth of office equipment, computers, faxes, everything, through my business to send home for Lisa to set up an office in the house where they could work for a couple of evenings a week doing small businesses' books. I'm working 18 hours a day and I'm also sending her money. 
I'm paying the mortgage, I'm paying the tax and insurance on her car, I'm paying all the bills and sending her money. She was living the good life. I paid for her flights to visit me, and when she came over to England, I spoiled her while she was here. She would come over with empty suitcases and go back with full suitcases. She wanted for nothing. This particular day, I phoned her and said, I love you, see you on Friday. I couldn't get her Saturday, couldn't get her Sunday, couldn't get her Monday. Tuesday morning I got her. I said, where have you been? I've been trying to get you for days. I feel trapped, she said. I need a break. It's all too much for me. I knew then there was something else. Tuesday afternoon, I'm in Dublin. I've got the court battles going on and at the same time the brewery are trying to evict me because they're saying I'm not a fit and proper person. I'm trying to build the business back up. So now I've got all this to contend with as well. So I'm in Dublin airport and I phone her. Lisa, I'm in Dublin now. I'm going to sort out money. I want to see you. If you come near my house, she said, I'll have you arrested. This is my missus living in my house. We're engaged to be married. Come near my house. I'll have you arrested. First of all, I said, what about my money? She said, Kira, that's her sister, will meet you in O'Connell Street, give you a draft. So Kira hands me a draft. I knew what my money was. Lisa had her own money. I was sending her her money and was sending her my money. I was giving her keep money, pay my house, pay her car, but I had my own separate money put into my own building society account and that was £7,000 light. I said to Kira, where's my £7,000 short? Kira goes, it's between you and Lisa. When we were living in Northern Ireland, Lisa said that she wasn't happy with her figure and she wanted to get her breasts surgically enhanced. Dr. Jan Stanick, the surgeon who performed the operation, had a clinic in Northern Ireland and he came over from Harley Street. I paid for it. After a few years, I'm living in Birmingham at this stage. She wasn't happy with the size that she'd gone up to and wanted to go even bigger. Big breasts seemed to be the fashionable thing. This was at the very time I was going through different battles with the breweries, the protection racketeers, VAT, everything. I was trying to keep our heads above water, but all she seemed to care about was having our breasts even bigger. Nothing would suit her more. So I paid for the second operation, the second enhancement. I can't remember when she actually had it done. At the time, I desperately needed the money for something else, but she wanted the operation, and for the sake of peace, I gave in. I'd bought the house in Gildare at this stage and I'd read about people in business going bankrupt and losing their property and I was a little bit naive thinking that they couldn't have taken the property in Ireland so I'd put it in her name thinking that we were going to be together forever. All I could think about was that. I didn't want to be a failure in the business and lose my house because I'd worked my way up and I'd bought properties and made some money and this was all I had. I'd given Lisa everything she needed. The car she was driving a Toyota Celica sports car. She was studying to be an accountant. I'd sent home £10,000 worth of computers, faxes, shredders, all stuff to set up an office in the house so she'd be able to work from there. I'd been really looking after her. I'd phoned her up again. Same thing again. Come near me and I'll have you arrested. On Wednesday, I went out jet skiing with my pals. On the Thursday, I woke up and I opened the newspaper and Lisa's sitting at the airport right next to Michael Flatley. Flatley's new friend. So now I know there's another man involved, the world's biggest star. This is my fiance. I went straight to her job, and when they wouldn't open the door, her boss said, No, go on away, through the intercom system. 
so I bust open the door with my shoulder to show them no door can keep me out. I went to her boss and I said, Shut your mouth. We're not talking about a Mickey Mouse relationship. We're talking about a man's life, a house. So I went up to Lisa and I looked at her. The eyes are the gateway to the soul. Tell me you're not with Flatley. Because the newspaper had them sitting apart with arms folded. She said, I went for the weekend down to his castle in Cork. He needed somebody to talk to. He's just come out of a relationship. Well, tell him to phone the Samaritans if he needed somebody to talk to. You're my fiancé. I was fuming. Where's my £7,000? What did he do? Charge you to stay in his castle? Charge you to fly in his helicopter? She said, I love you, but I'm just not in love with you. I'm gutted, totally gutted. Out I go. There's no hate feeling at all for her. She was a nice girl. All right, she might have been money motivated. She might have been wanting different things, but name me a woman that doesn't. She wasn't a good time girl, but she was ambitious. With hindsight, there's a lot of things I can now understand. When Lisa first met me, my fights had been on television in Ireland and I was a big fish in a small pond. Suddenly, now my boxing career's finished. I wasn't the star anymore and she began to make comments about how I'd never get her into Hello magazine. At the time, I thought they were only jokes, but now looking back, she obviously did want to be in Hello magazine. I drove to the airport on my own and flew back to Birmingham. Now, we used to have Irish dancing in the pub on a Wednesday night in the function room. But this was a Thursday and we were having a raffle at the time. I've raised a lot of money for charities over the years and that particular time we'd raised £1,750 through the raffle for Acorns Hospice. So we were having the cheque presentation on the Thursday night and I had to get back for that. What I didn't realise was that one of the Irish dancers had won the raffle. So, rather than having the Irish dancing on a Wednesday and then having to come back on the Thursday for the cheque presentation, they'd changed the Irish dancing from a Wednesday to a Thursday. Meanwhile, everybody in England, everybody in my pub, would be aware of my relationship with Lisa and what was happening with Flatley now because it was in all the newspapers. I drove back from the airport to my pub and when I got there, the Irish dancers, who normally dance in the function room, were all dancing round the lounge with the river dance music playing. I took it personally and thought they were all laughing at me. I stormed into my lounge. I was screaming and crying and I was shouting and fuming at everybody. You lousy bastards and everything. Because I thought they were laughing at me when they were only dancing for the presentation of the raffle. My business partner is trying to calm me down. I was calling him names. I said, they're all laughing at me. It's bad enough what she did. They're all laughing. I'm screaming and shouting, fuck flatly, this, that and everything. The Irish newspapers were there to cover the cheque presentation but also to get my comments about Lisa and Flatley. None of them would normally have had much interest in the cheque presentation, but because of what had gone on with Flatley, there were three Irish newspaper correspondents in the Midlands listening to I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, fuck Flatley. So now I'm arguing and screaming and shouting, and it all got blown out of proportion. The next day, I've got Flatley's PR people on the phone. Chris Roach is dead now, God rest him. Chris said on the phone, Look, Michael Flatley wasn't aware that Lisa was with someone. So she's denied me to Flatley. But now he knows she's engaged. Any man with a shred of decency would back off until she and I had sorted out our differences. But no, he doesn't want to do that. On the contrary, knowing my record in the boxing and because he'd been a Golden Gloves boxing champion himself, 
he sees the opportunity for big publicity for his new tour. He's already had the Lord of the Dance. He's already had the River Dance. Now he's got his new one, the Feet of Flames. And he sees it as a perfect chance. He gets pieces in the newspaper about me and him fighting over Lisa, with me getting knocked out. Egan and Flatley go to war over Lisa. Two of my bar staff on holiday in Turkey and Holland, and they see it in the national newspapers in those countries because he's worldwide. Flatley, the lord of the dance. Mike Tyson calls me and says he's read it in a magazine in Las Vegas. My illness now was getting worse. The court case was still on, and I was as low as a man can go. It was a pretty bad time in my life, but I was determined not to lose. Loads of times I question God. I'm not a holy Joe. I go to church and I say my prayers. I pray every night. You can ask any woman that's ever shared my bed at night before I go to sleep. I believe God made the world so everywhere is holy. A house is as good as a church if you're going to pray. You can pray anywhere. And I've got friends that are priests and monks. When I eventually got sent to prison for my character witness, I had a priest, Father Thomas Malloy, my local parish priest at the Abbey Church, and the two nuns, Sister Helen Ward and Sister Josephine Walsh, were character witnesses for me. And Father David Connolly, a very personal friend, who's the priest at Willesden Green Prison, and our parish priest at home, Joe Drumgool. I've got friends in every religion, and I respect every man's religion, no matter what God he prays to. I believe there's only one God, whatever name you want to call him. I call him God, some people call him Allah, some people call him Buddha. But whatever you want to call him, I still believe there's just the one God. Anyway, the public relations machine is making an even bigger issue of the business with Flatley. Flatley was on Irish television and somebody asked him from the audience, Is it true you earn a million dollars a week? He said, No, I don't earn a million dollars a week. I earn a million pounds a week. How can you compete with a man like that for a woman that seems interested in nothing other than that? My earning potential wasn't anywhere near his. I'd put my house into her name because the pub was only a dream. But if the dream had succeeded, I'd have a hundred houses. And if it didn't succeed, I didn't want to lose the one I'd got. Now I'm concerned about the house. I said, I don't care about her anymore. She's gone with Flatley. I can't change that. I'm not going to get her back, but I want my house. I want her to sign the house over. Chris Roach said, That's between you and Lisa. You sort that out with Lisa. Michael's only concerned about anything to do with him. And they were saying that they'd get her to sign the house over if I was prepared to say that she and I had finished months before that she was a single woman. So I said, I'll sign it. I want my house. I'll sign that we were finished months before. So I'm going to keep him whiter than white. No problem. Then they sickened the life clean out of me. They wanted me to sign that even if me and him were to box, I would be no match for Michael Flatley. And that was wreck of the deal. I freaked out. I went mad. I said, fuck Flatley. He couldn't lace my gloves. Tommy Gibbons During the time of the showdown in Dublin with Lisa, I was staying with my mum. Normally I'm a private person and I don't like my mum knowing my personal problems because I don't want to upset her. But now I'm ranting and raving and I'm on the phone to Lisa's mum, Irene, trying to find out exactly what's going on. She hangs up the phone on me. I'm fuming. So my mum says, Who owes you £12,000? I say, Lisa's mum and dad. My mum rings Lisa's mum. She says, 
Whatever's going on between Joe and Lisa, that's their business. Give the boy his £12,000 back. Next thing, my mum receives in the post from Lisa's family solicitor a letter that you wouldn't send to a dog. It was a horrible letter saying that Mrs Egan is intimidating the Murphy family. What? A phone call asking for her son's money back? It's obvious this solicitor has seen an opportunity. Now that Lisa is with Flatley, he's got himself illusions that he is suddenly going to become Flatley's solicitor. The letter really upsets my mum. She isn't too well with that was going on. She's had an aneurysm. She's had a stress-related stroke. It's having a bad effect on her. All over the newspapers about her son's relationship with Lisa. Flatley's PR people making a big issue of it all. And now on top of everything, having this solicitor's letter. At this same time, I'm trying to get the house sorted out. Tim Rocker, who's one of my closest friends, put me in touch with a personal friend of his called Tommy Gibbons, who's a solicitor within a small firm in Punchestown, Dublin. Now Tommy is Tim's personal friend. Tim's my personal friend. So Tommy is going to take an extra interest in this, not just as a solicitor's point of view, but also from a friendship point of view. Tommy is a solicitor within a small firm in Blanchardstown, Dublin. So it turns out that Lisa wants money to sign the house back over to me. So I have to pay money now to get my house back. It turns out that I've got to pay Lisa's solicitors and I've also got to pay my solicitor, plus a substantial amount of money to Lisa to take her name off the property. I agreed to pay the £2,700 to her solicitor and £2,000 to Tommy Gibbons. But when we're going through the breakdown of Lisa's solicitor's bill, I find that I have to pay for a letter that the Murphy family have sent to my mother about the intimidating phone call. Now I'm boiling. It's already upset my mum and now I'm paying for that upset. So I pay Tommy Gibbons his £2,000 and I said to him, Tommy, here's the £2,700 for Lisa's solicitor. A solicitor's word is as good as money in the bank. If you give me your word that that £2,700 is going to go across to Lisa's family solicitor, hold fire paying him. Whatever the deadline is, hold fire till the day before the deadline and then pay him. £2,700 is a pittance to what solicitors earn, but I just wanted him to wait for his money because he was greedy in the fact that he was charging for that particular letter. I said, let him wait for the money. Tommy Gibbon says, I take my instructions off you, Joe. So the bill sorted, leases paid, the solicitors paid, everything set, all the cash sorted. I've gone back to England, starting to get my life in order again. I'd been very sick because of everything going on and i got other battles coming up. I've come into my pub this particular day, and Madeline, my barmaid, says, Joe, Tommy Gibbons, the solicitor, has been on the phone. He needs to talk to you about Flatley. My stomach's gone into knots because this is behind me now. I've gone into my office to make the phone call to Tommy, thinking, what's happening now? So I ring up Tommy Gibbons. I said, Tommy, I've got the message that you need to contact me about Flatley. What's happened? Everything's cool, Joe, he said. It's a dream come true. Dream come true for who? He says, for me. It's like a rocky story. I'm flummoxed. What do you mean, a rocky story? Never in my wildest dreams did I ever think that I would have dealings with this particular firm of solicitors. What firm of solicitors? Flatly solicitors. What's Flatly solicitors contacting you for? No, it's all right. It's the money that you've given me to pay Lisa's family solicitor. The £2,700. I haven't paid him yet. Why not? Don't be worried. Everything's okay. We're still within the deadline. You're okay. 
but obviously Lisa's family's been contacted by the solicitor to say that they haven't been paid the £2,700. This has been going on a long time. He says he wants his £2,700. Lisa's family have contacted Lisa to say that the agreement was that the solicitor would get paid by me and I haven't paid. Lisa's obviously saying it to Flatley and Flatley's getting a headache. So he's obviously instructed his solicitors in America, a huge firm, and their letter is faxed through to Tommy Gibbons to get this case closed, signed, sealed, over, pay the solicitor, so he can just put this to bed. Tommy can't believe that he's had this correspondence. He's a solicitor in a small practice in Dublin. He's now getting contact from Michael Flatley's solicitors. He's now getting the deal with the champion of all the solicitors. Now suddenly he's with the big boys on the world scene of solicitors. He's got correspondence directed at him and he is over the moon because these boys are not telling him, they're asking him to close this case. In solicitor terminology, they can't dictate to him because he can drag it out. Is that what I'd like him to do? I say, no, just put it to bed, Tommy. I've achieved what I wanted to achieve. Here at Boomer and Jen, we offer a wide range of organic or recycled clothing. We all know our planet is important. We only have this one. So it's vital that we all work together to slow down and reverse the changes to the environment. Whilst we all know that big industry are having a significant effect on pollution, here at Boomer and Jen, we believe that if we all make small changes, we can do our part. Fast fashion causes detrimental effects to the planet. Not only is nearly 20% of global wastewater produced by the fast fashion industry, but there is a considerable amount of fast fashion ending up in landfill. So let's move away from fast fashion items that are only worn once or twice and start wearing extremely comfortable, durable and environmentally friendly clothing and ethical jewellery. Boomer and Jen was founded in a quiet town in Devon in 2018. It has now gone from strength to strength as the world is becoming more aware of the current climate situation, helping our customers to buy sustainable, quality clothing. All of our products are fair trade and registered with the Global Organic Textiles Standard Association. Check us out on Organic Cotton Clothing Gadfly Press is proud to announce the publication of Big Joe Egan, the toughest white man on the planet. And that statement came from none other than Mike Tyson, who wrote the introduction to the book. If you want to check it out, the link is in the description box below the video. It's got almost five stars on Amazon. And it is mind-blowing stories of Joe's rise in boxing. You've got the crime story of what went down at the pub, the war at the pub, Joe's incarceration, and how the toughest white man on the planet could not be held down, how he rebuilt his life. He's gone from strength to strength, and what he's, you know, you can see right now what he's doing all over the world. So links will be in the description box below the video. Thanks for watching. So the book, Big Joe Egan, Toughest White Man on the Planet, is available in all three formats, audio, ebook, and paperback, worldwide on Amazon, link in the description box.